For so long, we've had this idea that addiction is a downstream consequence of some other problem, but addiction is its own problem. You can have a perfect life and get very, very addicted. Because yes, it's true that childhood trauma increases your risk for developing addiction. Yes, it's true that addiction leads to isolation and that the antidote to addiction is social connection in part. But what is so important to understand is you can have the perfect childhood, the perfect parents, the greatest social network, the best spouse, wonderful kids, and you can get really, really addicted. And that is so important for people to understand and also healthcare providers because everybody's sort of looking for the reason behind the addiction, but there doesn't have to be a reason behind addiction. Addiction just can be on its own. We live in a world in which we are saturated with dopamine and we live in a culture which encourages us to pursue it. But the ultimate end result of pursuing dopamine is to feel worse than when you started. And, and this is really the central message. People are more depressed, more anxious, more suicidal and more addicted than they were 30 years ago. And I contend that one of the main reasons is because of this relentless pursuit of pleasure that essentially adjusts the dopamine levels, changes the hedonic pleasure set point to make people anhedonic, meaning without joy. That's Dr. Anna Lemke, and this is The Ritual Podcast. The Rich Roll Podcast. We're going to talk about addiction today. Substance addiction, of course, but also addiction more broadly. How, as the world has evolved from one of scarcity to one of overabundance, and we increasingly orient our lives around the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain, how we set ourselves up for myriad and unprecedented types of addiction, and consequently invite the pain into our lives that we so desperately seek to avoid. My guest for this exploration is Dr. Anna Lemke. Anna is a professor of psychiatry at Stanford University School of Medicine and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. A clinician scholar and authority on addiction medicine, the neuroscience of addiction and the opioid crisis, Anna has appeared in the Netflix documentary, Social Dilemma, widely discussed on this podcast. She is widely published. She's testified before Congress and has authored two important books, Drug Dealer MD, which the New York Times declared one of the top five books to read to understand the opioid epidemic, and her newest, Dopamine Nation, which is a really powerful primer on how to moderate compulsive overconsumption in a world where, unfortunately, feeling good has become confused with the highest good. A few more things to mention before we dive in, but first. We're brought to you today by On. I am a total gearhead. I love researching the latest technology for the sports I enjoy. And I've learned that people often overlook apparel, but what you wear isn't just clothes. It is without a doubt, technology. 
technology that can make or break a performance. And I can tell you, after spending two full days meeting with the apparel wizards at On Labs in Zurich, that On is innovating in this space like no other with next-gen premium fabrics and just this heightened level of sophistication and precision and testing and development and intentionality previously unheard of that puts them just miles beyond the competition. I've been rocking On's high-performance running apparel, including the long tees, the weather jackets, even the climate jacket, all super lightweight, tailor fit, built to move, and just gorgeous to get you out and get it done in fleet foot comfort, no matter the weather. I'm super proud to be a brand partner with this impressive team from increasing product sustainability to improved energy return and impact protection, truly Swiss innovation at its finest. To get you moving, On is offering an exclusive 10% discount. To redeem, head over to on.com slash richroll and use code richroll10 at checkout. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. I've spent countless hours researching and testing various methods to improve my nightly shut-eye, and I can confidently say that it all starts with a good foundation. And if your bed is old, if it's uncomfortable, lumpy, then your sleep inevitably is going to be impacted. So it's important to invest in a quality mattress, one that's insanely comfortable, that's organic, sustainably made, and that, my friends, is a birch mattress. Fair Trade and Rainforest Alliance certified with the finest quality organic natural materials like organic fair trade cotton. Birch mattresses are made with none of the toxic chemicals and off-gassing produced by most major brands. Kind of important not to be breathing that for a third of your life, I'd say. Plus, it's super luxurious. I've been sleeping on Birch for about five years, and I'd say it's the perfect ratio of soft to supportive. And the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it. Pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. We're brought to you today by recovery.com. I've been in recovery for a long time. It's not hyperbolic to say that I owe everything good in my life to sobriety. And it all began with treatment and experience that I had that quite literally saved my life. And in the many years since, I've in turn helped many suffering addicts and their loved ones find treatment. And with that, I know all too well just how confusing and how overwhelming and how challenging it can be to find the right place and the right level of care, especially because unfortunately, not all treatment resources adhere to ethical practices. It's a real problem, a problem I'm now happy and proud to share has been solved by the people at recovery.com who created an online support portal designed to guide, to support and empower you to find the ideal level of care tailored to your personal needs. They've partnered with the best global behavioral health providers to cover the full spectrum of behavioral health disorders, including substance use disorders, depression, anxiety, eating disorders, gambling addictions, and more. Navigating their site is simple. Search by insurance coverage, location, treatment type, you name it. Plus, you can read reviews from former patients to help you decide. 
Whether you're a busy exec, a parent of a struggling teen, or battling addiction yourself, I feel you. I empathize with you. I really do. And they have treatment options for you. Life in recovery is wonderful, and recovery.com is your partner in starting that journey. When you or a loved one need help, go to recovery.com and take the first step towards recovery. To find the best treatment option for you or a loved one, again, go to recovery.com. Okay, Dr. Anna Lemke. This is an important conversation, an impactful conversation that explores the nature, psychology, and neuroscience of addiction, the explosion in addiction that is occurring in lockstep with technological advances, We talk about the opioid crisis and the fascinating history behind how we think about and treat pain. We discuss a variety of recovery protocols from 12-step to the latest science on psychedelics and what to do to avoid becoming addicted and what to do if you become addicted. It's a conversation that I think will reframe and broaden your understanding of addiction. And I suspect we'll hold great value for anyone currently struggling with addiction or close to someone who does, which let's face it, is almost everybody. So without further ado, this is me and Dr. Anna Lemke. Anna, so nice to meet you. Thank you so much for traveling down here to do this. I really appreciate it. Well, you're very welcome. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I'm excited to talk to you. Um, We were introduced by our mutual friend, Andrew Huberman. Any any recommendation from him is one worth noting. He's such a unbelievable mind. He's been a great guest and, and, and he's become a good friend. And, you know, upon his recommendation, the more I've dug into your story and your work, the more excited I got to, to, to do this with you. I think you're really the perfect person to have a really, I think, important, impactful conversation around the nature of addiction and kind of the current culture and our relationship to the dopamine-induced world that we now find ourselves in. Well, um, first, let me say I agree with you 100% on Andrew Huberman. He is, you know, my colleague at Stanford, another professor, but I've seldom met a colleague who so generously was willing to promote um, someone else's work. Mm. And um, he's been just amazing about Dopamine Nation and trying to help me, you know, get it, get the word out and, and get it read. And of course, um, I'm really, really excited to be here and talk to you. It's a, yeah. it's a real real privilege. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, so much to, to talk about. People who, who listen or watch the show know that um, I have a personal history with addiction and recovery and sobriety. It's a, it's a major theme or topic. Um, that recurs on this show. And, and and I think a good place to kind of start with this is to share a little bit, you know, from my personal perspective, when I think back on my emotional state of being when I was at the nadir of my using and facing the prospect of getting sober, I just remember such a deep sense of 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 shame and embarrassment and this sense of just being irreparably broken and being scared of everybody, scared of everything, of the world. And and this sense that, you know, really getting honest with myself about the fact that I was an addict 
really equated to just to being a broken human being and this pathology that it evokes, you know, because my sense was that addicts were, you know, needle fiends and and hopeless drunks. And that's kind of where the conversation uh, begins and ends. But as somebody who's been steeped in the recovery community and somebody who's been sober for a little while, I've become increasingly convinced over many years that that addiction is so misunderstood and so much more widely prevalent than I think we realize. And also that it exists on on a spectrum that is so broad that it's not that much of a stretch to argue or contend that on some level, we can all identify ourselves somewhere along that spectrum, whether it's a mild unhealthy compulsion all the way to some kind of full blown life implosion. And I'm interested in, in your sense of that because I feel that your work and in particular, this latest book, Dopamine Nation, which we're gonna talk about, um, really you know, is, is furthering that sensibility and providing that kind of perspective to a broad audience. I wanna first respond to your use of the word feeling broken. I think that is probably the single most powerful thing that has drawn me to people with addiction in recovery is that they've passed through that crucible of complete feelings of brokenness, humility, and they've come out the other side as these incredible humans with tremendous wisdom. And the the book really is in homage to people Mm -hmm. with, with addiction who are, who have found recovery precisely because they have a profound humility, um, having been through that experience. And although my addictions, which I talk about in the book are, you know, more minor than somebody with Mm -hmm. severe addiction. And um, and somewhat comical. uh, Somewhat comical, but (laughs) you know, for me, they were uh, actually- Real for you. Yeah, they were real. It's a subjective relationship. It is, And, 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 and because of the work that I do, I was at some point able to be aware of what was happening to me that I I don't think I would have been able to do had I not been in the line of work that I am. But I think most importantly, I've had other experiences in my life that have left me also feeling totally broken, a broken human, you know, Mm -hmm. full of shame, full of feeling like I wasn't good enough. And so I've really gravitated toward other people who have had that experience of brokenness and yet from it become stronger because of the profound humility that it engenders and a kind of surrender to the universe and a willingness to appreciate that like we have so little control and all the other stuff, right. that, all the other good yeah, stuff yeah, yeah. that comes with that. Yeah, you share a, a, a quote near the beginning of the book that I love by this guy, Kent Dunnington, who says, Persons with severe addictions are among those contemporary prophets that we ignore to our own demise for they show us who we truly are. Yes, and that's who I'm meeting for yeah. dinner. Oh, you are, cool. <laughs> yeah. Who is Kent Dunning? I don't know who yeah. he is. So he's a really interesting guy. He's a theologian and a philosopher. He works at Biola University. And I first came across um, a book he wrote called um, Addiction and Virtue, which is this philosophical lens through which to 
consider whether or not addiction really is a disease and whether or not people have a choice mm-hmm. and what that choice looks like. And he, he uses Aristotle and it's a, a fascinating look at that question because in the medical field now, I am really steeped in this idea that addiction is a disease. It's a chronic relapsing and remitting disease. There's, you know, uh, verifiable brain chemistry changes that occurs, people become addicted. And yet, and yet, and I believe that that's true, and yet there is this element of choice, right? Somewhere along the way, people can choose to get help. Really, that's the fundamental choice piece mm-hmm. that's left. It's, they can't necessarily choose to not drink or not use, but they can choose to say, I have don't have the ability to choose or not choose to drink, but I do have the ability to hand it over to somebody else who might help me. Sure. So anyway. Th- but that's, that element of choice is, is difficult. Uh, you know, often it's said that recovery is for people who want it, not those who, who need it. And too often the person who needs it is una- is is unable to make that choice. They're they're, yes. they're like the most l- unlikely person to make that choice. Yes. Yes, I think that's that's mm-hmm. right. That's right. I mean and and that's where this kind of mysterious thing happens where even people who really don't have the ability to to make the choice can get into recovery, mm-hmm. right? And we see that happen all the time. Right. And so you know, in the context of this, we're gonna talk about neuroscience, we're gonna talk about psychology, we're gonna talk about environment, genetics. There's so many things that that contribute to this, but in that context of of choice, it's so it it never it never ceases to astound me that some people can just have an epiphany and say, This is a problem and I'm gonna correct it, and they just do it while others have to go to the gates of hell before they're ready to reckon with it. And too many just perish you know, without ever having the courage to, you know, make that, make that switch. Yes, that's right. It's so terrifying and, mm-hmm. and, and sad in that mm-hmm. regard, right? Yes. But my perspective is that in the, the typical case is the person who um, is kind of sliding down that scale with their addiction until they get to the point where the pain of perpetuating or continuing along that path exceeds the fear of letting go of it and trying something new. Yeah, that's right. That that recognition that there's really no other option um, but to embrace recovery. Mm-hmm. So why don't we define our terms here a little okay, bit? Yeah. Like how do you yes. define addiction? Uh, I define addiction as uh, the continued compulsive use of a drug or behavior despite harm to self and or others. How do, mm-hmm. how do you define it? I mean, that's that's the standard definition. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. Right. And how does that, like, as I mentioned at the opening, there's alcoholism, there's drug addiction. Um, there are some qualitative differences between uh, substance addiction and behavioral addictions. And now that we're in this world where everything has an addictive allure to it, do you qualify our relationship with our devices and online shopping and gambling in the same way, like with this idea of addiction being a spectrum, how does it differ in terms of like our relationship to Twitter versus our relationship to heroin? I don't really see all that much difference between those Mm -hmm. things. I think it's just a matter of degree. 
Obviously, when we're talking about heroin, we're talking about the physiologic dependence and withdrawal as well, which I do think happens with behavioral addictions to things like Twitter. I believe we can have a true physiologic dependence and withdrawal to those behaviors, but not to the same degree as with something like an opioid. But in terms of the psychological aspect of the attachment, I think it's very, very similar. And I believe that because I've seen so many people come through my office who are addicted to things like gaming, gambling, mm -hmm. pornography, shopping, and the natural history is exactly the same. The, the manifestations are the same. The process of getting into recovery is the same. So to me, they're all one bucket. Mm -hmm. So is there a distinction between kind of an unhealthy recurring semi-compulsive habit and what you would consider truly an addiction? Because both habits and addictive behaviors work through our dopamine reward pathway, I really think it's the same biology. It's just a matter of degree. Mm -hmm. And because I have seen people who can get severely addicted to behaviors like gambling, pornography, video games, to the point where they are suicidal, so they their life is threatened by that disease process or that behavior, I, I really think it's the same biochemistry. It's the same phenomenon in yeah, the brain. Yeah, it, it seems to me we're in this weird time where on the one hand, we use the word addiction very cavalierly, like, oh, I'm addicted to my TV show or chocolate or what have you. And yet at the same time, we underappreciate the fact that some of these things truly are addictions, right? Like these, these two things kind of cross each other in the night in a, in a weird way, which I think prevents us from really looking at them through the appropriate clinical lens. Yes, I think you're right. I think the way that we cavalierly refer to behaviors as addictions, oh, I'm addicted to whatever my Netflix show, um, does minimize the extent to which the brain biology is the same and also minimizes the, the impact on our lives. Because if we were to really scrutinize that behavior, I think people would begin to realize that that it really truly does have an adverse impact on their lives mm -hmm. and that you know we can't trivialize that i mean i've had for example um you know journalists writing for esteemed publications um, you know, call me to interview me about sex addiction and say to me, well, that's, it's not really an addiction, is it? I mean, it's really mm -hmm. just about cultural mores around, you know, what's acceptable sexual behavior and what isn't. And, and I've had to correct that person and say, no, you're, you're wrong. Mm -hmm. This is really an addiction. It can devastate lives. People can lose their lives over these problems. And it's not just about, you know, oh, you know, polyamory should be socially accepted. It's, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about a compulsive out of control phenomenon that has very serious consequences for people's sure. people's lives. Sure, if anybody questions that, I encourage you to read the first chapter of your book because it's the <laughs> most harrowing bone chilling story of a sex addict yeah, and the right. links that that guy goes to, to satisfy his need. Right. It's right. unbelievable. Yeah, and the fact that he's highly educated, that he's 
a good and kind person, mm-hmm. that he has good social supports, he has a great job. I mean, this is what I really wanna drive home to people. Like, yeah, there are many risk factors for addiction, but you can have none of those risk factors in today's world and get really addicted. Mm-hmm. Do you feel like we're starting to understand that in the sense that anybody can be an addict regardless of your social status or level of education, et cetera? I do think so. I mean, I do think we've moved beyond this moralizing around addiction um, as more and more people struggle with severe addiction and it crosses all demographics, all social classes. I think Mm -hmm. people, I mean, for example, in surveys of Americans asking whether or not they think addiction is a biologically based disease, the majority of Americans today will say, yes, it is. Mm-hmm. And that's different from 50 years ago. Yeah. So I think we we have shifted in that regard, but I think what's still new to people is the extent to which we've all become vulnerable to this problem. Yeah. That is a big difference, yeah. right? And I do think, although we may recognize that that truth in that there is this biological component to it, we still are shocked when we hear the story of the upwardly mobile person who goes down some dark rabbit hole. Do you remember that? It was a New York Times article a couple of years ago about the guy, the lawyer in Silicon Valley, yes. that was like a huge profile yes. of his second, you know, his other life. Yes. And I just remember how, uh, you know, people were so shocked by yes. that story. Somebody who's been in recovery for a long time, I'm like, yeah, you know, I hear that story all the time. Right. But that was, I remember that being a big deal. Yeah, I think that there's still, um, this kind of self-medication hypothesis thinking around addiction, which is only partially true. And the hypothesis goes like this, that addiction is the result of some other problem, Mm. either a willpower problem or a psychiatric illness problem, or um, you know a sociocultural problem, but you can have none of those problems and still get addicted. And I, that that's what's like, I've spent a major part of my career re-educating in particular psychiatrists around this, this, this idea, because for so long we've had this idea that, that addiction is a downstream consequence of some mm. other problem, but addiction is its own problem. You can have a perfect life and get very, very addicted. Yeah, yeah, that's a really important point. You know, I've had conversations with Gabor Mate. And for him, it's all about childhood trauma, resolve that, you resolve the addiction. I had Johan Hari here, for him, it's all about lost connections, your connectivity to your friends and your family and your community. And I think those are important pieces in this puzzle, but I'm reluctant to be reductionist about the role that those play in, in, the, in the broader context of addiction. Thank you so much for invoking those examples because that shows me that you perfectly understand what I'm trying to communicate here. Because yes, it's true that childhood trauma increases your risk for developing addiction. Yes, it's true that addiction leads to isolation and that the antidote to addiction is social connection in part. But what is so important to understand is you can have the perfect childhood, the perfect parents, the greatest social network, the best spouse, wonderful kids, and you can get 
really, really addicted. Mm -hmm. And that is so important for people to understand and also healthcare providers, because everybody's sort of looking for the reason behind the addiction, but there doesn't have to be a reason behind addiction. Addiction just can be on its own. Yeah, Yeah, I think that's a crucial point. I mean, I get asked very frequently, like, what do you think caused this? Like, what is the source of your addiction? And, you know, I'm heavily indoctrinated in in 12 step and I'm sure I have some biases around that. But one of the things that you learn is that it's fine if you wanna psychoanalyze that aspect of your origin story, but ultimately it doesn't avail you with the tools for how to live today and how to move productively forward. And, you know, there is an argument to be made that it's sort of, uh, you know, a fool's errand to spend too much time on that. Yes, insight can be the booby prize. Yeah. Yeah, no, this is a really um, very, very important concept. And and the other reason it's important is because I think we're natural storytellers and we want to rationalize irrational behavior. And so, the first thing that we try to do when we are doing something that's irrational and self and other destructive is to tell ourselves a story or have someone else tell us a story about why we would do that crazy mm-hmm. thing. But And if I, we can solve that equation, then suddenly every everything makes right. sense and you can figure this out. Right. But it Ex- doesn't work no, that way. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I have I have had over 20 plus years, countless patients come into my office and say, Dr. Lemke, the reason that I'm addicted to alcohol or I'm addicted to cannabis or I'm, you know, a compulsive gambler is because I'm depressed and anxious. And if you would just fix that, then I wouldn't have that other problem. And what I have to do is say to them, you know what? I wish that were true, but here's the truth. Number one, even if I could magically wave my wand and make your depression and anxiety go away, once you're addicted, you're addicted. And if Mm -hmm. we don't focus on that problem, that's not going to get better. Um, The other thing is that, you know, that relationship between psychological symptoms and addiction, it's complicated and it's not necessarily that the depression comes first and then the addiction comes. Addiction can lead to depression and anxiety, which is why my first intervention so Mm -hmm. often is to have people abstain. But I'll never forget a patient of mine who said, you know, Dr. Lemke, I realized I was an alcoholic when I got started on an antidepressant, wasn't depressed anymore, but kept drinking. Mm -hmm. That was his aha moment because he was like, oh, I thought I was drinking because I was was depressed. But when I stopped being depressed, I was still drinking. Yeah, that's kind of the genius behind your dual diagnosis clinic, right? It's almost a Trojan horse way of just treating addiction because the way you get them in the door um, in a non-threatening way is under the rubric of treating their anxiety or depression, et cetera. Right, yes. Although it's not without effort because people are resistant to that idea, right? They, they, They come in and they want help with depression, anxiety. They see the addiction as a secondary problem and it takes all my powers of persuasion to get them on board. <laughs> yeah, none too happy to be told that yeah. we can't deal with your you know, right. condition X until we deal with this yes. substance or right. behavioral yes. addiction that you have yes. and they storm out and yeah. yes. leave a one-star Yelp review or something. Exactly, <laughs> you, you've got it yeah. exactly, you right. understand. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if people don't wanna hear that, mm-hmm. you know, it's interesting. That, that piece, I mean, as a psychiatrist though, you must have, honed tools for how to communicate with people to kind of crack that core. Yes. And the the the, the key piece is to be empathic at the same time that you're telling people what they don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. 
You know that's what I mean? That's tough. That's a tightrope walk. It, it is. It is. But I feel like I've gotten pretty good at it. Having teenagers also helps. Mm-hmm. You know, to sort of you you breathe and you stay calm and you say, you know, I understand what you're saying, right? So the typical sort of validating first, but then you give them kind of the real deal. You know what the science shows, what my clinical experience shows what I'm asking them to experiment with so that they can gather their own data and see if what I'm saying is mm-hmm. right. But on the, the data piece, I mean, this doesn't operate you know, in a logical framework, it's an emotional framework yes. and timing is so important, right? Like I'm happy to talk sobriety with anyone who's suffering, but I've learned to detach or from any expectations of what they will or won't do. Like people get sober when they're ready to. Yeah. And one of the main things I have to teach my uh, trainees, my fellows, is that an essential part of the work that we do is that we have to actually really care about our patients. But there is a point at which you can care too much. And when we're trying harder than the patient is mm-hmm. or wanting it more than the patient wants it, we're not actually helping mm-hmm. them. Then you gotta go to the, the Al-Anon meeting. That's right. Everyone's <laughs> yeah. gonna, <laughs> well, we have to conduct yeah. our own little Al-Anon session, right. you know, right, right there at work. Cause right. I work with a bunch of young folks, which I can say is one of the most exciting things that's happened in the last 10 years, you know, 10 years ago, I couldn't find a medical student under a rock who wanted to learn about addiction. Now mm. they're beating down my door, yeah. which is really awesome. Yeah. Well, let's talk about the the neurochemistry of addiction. Walk me through what's happening in our brains and the role that dopamine plays in all of this. Yeah. So dopamine is a neurotransmitter, which means that it is the molecule that allows the electrical signal from the presynaptic neuron to be communicated to the postsynaptic neuron because there's a little gap called the synapse between those two neurons. So neurotransmitters allow fine tuning of those electrical signals. And dopamine is the most important neurotransmitter involved in motivation and reward. And the fundamental difference between things that are addictive and those that aren't is that things that are addictive release a lot more dopamine. So we have dopamine firing in our brain that occurs at a tonic baseline. And when we do something that's rewarding or pleasurable, we get a little rise in dopamine levels or a spike. Um, So for example, chocolate increases dopamine levels about 50% above baseline. Um, Sex is about 100%, nicotine is about 150%, and things like um, methamphetamines are Mm 1000%, partially because of their, their specific mechanism. But the, the fundamental way that I explain to patients and medical students and now in my book um, about the neuroscience of addiction so that they can really understand what's happening in the brain is I say that really you have to imagine that in your brain, there's a balance like a teeter-totter in a playground. When we experience pleasure, the balance tips one way. When we experience pain, it tips the other. Um, But one of the fundamental rules governing that balance is that it wants to remain level. So with any deviation from neutrality, the brain will work very hard to restore a level balance or what's called homeostasis. Mm -hmm. So for example, if I do something pleasurable, like eat a piece of chocolate, I get a little tip to the side of pleasure, a little release of dopamine, but no sooner has that happened than my brain adapts to that phenomenon by down-regulating my own dopamine receptors down-regulating my own dopamine transmission. And I imagine that is these little gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But the thing about the gremlins is they like it on the balance. So they stay on until the balance is tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain. 
and that's called the opponent process reaction, the hangover, the come down, the act after effect. Now, and in my case, that's, that's that moment of wanting another piece of chocolate. If I wait long enough, the gremlin hops off, hops off and balance is restored. But if I continue to consume chocolate in ever larger amounts to overcome the tolerance or the number of gremlins on the pain side, then I end up with enough gremlins on the pain side of my balance to fill this whole room. And I'm essentially in a dopamine deficit state mm -hmm. with a balance tilted to the side of pain. Now I have to keep using not to feel good, but just to feel normal. And when I stop using, my balance tips hard to the side of pain. I'm irritable, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, I can't sleep. Those are the universal symptoms of withdrawal from any addictive substance. And that can last a long time. Yeah. I think it brings up an important kind of broader um, point about culture in general and this idea that we live in a situation in which there's this asymmetry in terms of how we approach our lives with respect to pleasure and pain. And we organize our lives completely around the pursuit of pleasure and the avoidance of pain. But as you kind of astutely put in the book, the more that we pursue that, ultimately the more pain that we reap because these systems require a level of homeostasis that we're constantly trying to avoid. So we're just, delaying the inevitable onslaught of pain that that you know we so fear. Yes, absolutely. We live in a world in which we are saturated with dopamine and we live in a culture which encourages us to pursue it. But the ultimate end result of pursuing dopamine is to feel worse than when you started. And and this is really the central message. People are more depressed, more anxious, more suicidal and more addicted than they were 30 years ago. And I contend that one of the main reasons is because of this relentless pursuit of pleasure that essentially adjusts the dopamine levels, changes the hedonic or pleasure, or, or pleasure set point to make people anhedonic, meaning without joy. Yeah, and, and you can kind of calibrate this in lockstep with how we've progressed from a world of scarcity into a world of over overabundance, right? And so these addictive behaviors and substances are ubiquitous. It used to just be, you know, hard drugs and 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 alcohol and cigarettes, et cetera. But now it's literally everything from, you know, the billboards and the advertisements and the marketing messages crafted by Madison Avenue to, of course, the devices that we all carry around with us that are specifically designed to lure us into this, you know, dopamine induced state and the food system that's specifically designing foods with the right proportion of salt, sugar, and fat to make it impossible to just eat one potato chip. Yes, exactly. I mean, addiction can happen now in every realm of life. It's almost impossible to escape it. And the three factors that make anything more addictive or quantity, potency, and novelty. And what our capitalist, technologically innovative world has created is an infinite quantity, incredible potency, and endless novelty and variety. Yeah. And ubiquitous availability. Yes. Right. right. And it's, the it's unavoidable. Yes, right. Now. And now it's 24 seven and mm -hmm. it's digital and it's right to your doorstep. Exactly. Right. Everything's delivered as well. Yes, right. Including all the substances. Right. <laughs> you know, which we're gonna get into. But one curious thing for me is, 
you know, why someone becomes, if, if this, you know, dopamine neurotransmitter pathway that you're speaking about seems to be, uh, you know, a general quality of all humans, why do some people get addicted and why some people don't? And, you know, for example, like alcohol is my drug of choice, gambling, which debilitates a lot of people carries no charge for me at all. Like I just couldn't be less interested in it. Like, how does that work? Is that where genetics and nurturing and all kinds of other things come into play? Well, first let me speak to the concept of drug of choice because it's a fascinating one and there's actually very little science around it, but we know phenomenologically that it's true. What, what makes one person's balance tip to the side of pleasure doesn't necessarily make another person's balance tip to the side of pleasure. So for me personally, I thought that I was immune to the problem of addiction because the substances that are readily available and that most people get addicted to do absolutely nothing for me. Mm -hmm. But look what happened to me. I did find a substance that turned out to be incredibly reinforcing for me, essentially romance novels. Right. Right. I know you laugh, you laugh, but yeah. I, I mean, you know, it was Did wasn't, you really read the entire Twilight series four times? I did. Yeah. That was my gateway uh -huh. drug. Are you kidding? <laughs> I, I really did. And then I moved on from there because I developed tolerance after the fourth time. It was no longer doing it for it you. It wasn't. It wasn't good enough. It was and it was really mysterious because I was like, you know, this is a like a teenage romance novel about vampires. And I was in my forties. Mm -hmm. So I mean that in itself is slightly embarrassing, but it just it just led to this down this whole weird right. road for me. Enter 50 shades of gray. Right, right. That'll do the trick. <laughs> that, that was my bottom right there. No pun <laughs> okay. intended. Um, so, so I guess my point, you know, to answer your question is that I think we're all gonna get addicted to something mm. because now that special key that works for each of our individual locks, it's out there somewhere and the World Wide Web will allow us to find it. Having said that, it is true that people bring different degrees of vulnerability to the process of addiction. We do know that about 50 to 60% of the risk of becoming addicted is genetic. That's based on family studies showing that if you have a biological parent or grandparent addicted to alcohol, you are at increased risk of becoming an alcoholic yourself, even if you're raised outside of the alcoholic home in a non-using home. So, so that's powerful genetics. It's polygenic, it's complex. We don't fully understand it. It's thought to be related to things like impulse control, ability to delay gratification, um, emotional dysregulation, but you know, we don't really know what it is. Other risk factors include co-occurring psychiatric disorders, people with psychiatric disorders are more likely to develop an addiction and also how you were raised. If you had a traumatic experience, as we've talked about, that's put, that puts you at risk. If you have parents who have explicitly or implicitly condoned substance use, either for recreation or as a coping strategy, that puts you at risk. Things like poverty, unemployment, that puts you at risk. So there are lots and lots of risk factors, but, but I think that the major risk factor in the modern, modern world and one which is generally ignored is simple access. If you have access to a drug, you are more likely to try it and more likely to get addicted to it. And now, as we've talked about, we live in a world of virtually infinite access. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you say there's a quote in the book, something along the lines of, whatever, there is something that will addict you and it's coming to a website near you right, soon. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and it's never, it's never been more true. But yeah. that idea that there is a drug out there that will be the key to your specific lock, I think is super interesting. And you use the example 
in the book of this Stanford student who had all manner of problems and kept screwing his life up and tried all different kinds of drugs and would come back to Stanford and, and just go down some crazy drug rabbit hole and drop out. And he did this a number of times until he was prescribed Suboxone and right. that really kind of balanced him out. And then the question becomes, is this something that he, you know, in his mind, he's like, I need to do this for the rest of my life. Like I can function as a normal human being right now. The question being, can he be, um, you know, titrated off of that and be normal or, is there truth to this idea that some people have a brain chemistry that's lacking in some regard that a substance can solve to make them productive and you know quote unquote kind of normally operative? Yes, I'm so glad that you have fundamentally understood um, that that example um, of this very wonderful young man who is still um, my patient. And he is doing so well in his life. Um, it's just great to see, and he's a great guy. And as you describe, I don't, I don't know the answer. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I don't know whether he was born with something missing, whether his heroin use broke his brain so that now he needs the opioids for the rest of his life, um, whether maybe it's really something with our culture and you know our our inability to create community which he looked for at stanford and couldn't find and that somehow the opioid then becomes a way to adapt to a crazy world and maybe that's okay like maybe we have to take drugs to like just exist in this really nutty world you know all those questions are things that that i don't have the answers to but that i think a lot about mhm mm yeah it's complicated isn't yeah. it yeah you know, I mean, the addict in me wants to believe that there's some drug out there that will solve my sense of discomfort, you yeah. know, and will allow me to just be functional without any kind of pathology attached to it. Well, here's what I've come to conclude, and this is really a mantra for my own life, that I'm never actually gonna feel comfortable in the world or with living, that it's always gonna be painful and unpleasant. And that's just the way it is. Mm. Um, and well, that's back to the pain pleasure kind right. of paradox, right? I mean, that's that's sort of a, a page out of Susan David's thesis of of developing emotional resilience, like right. just being okay with the fact that you know, in this happiness obsessed world that we live in, you know, acknowledging the truth that life is hard, and yes. the more that we can kind of just be present with that, the more resilience we develop, and the more kind of productive and fulfilled we ultimately can become, but people don't wanna hear that. You know, it's really fascinating. So as I've matured as a psychiatrist and as I've just matured, um, I will say to patients things like, they'll say, you know what, I'm not, you know, life is really hard or I'm, I'm just anxious all the time. And I will say things like, yeah, I know what you mean, me too. <laughs> and you would be surprised, but people are kind of relieved they're kind of relieved. They're sort of like, wow, if this Stanford doctor is like experiencing anxiety and dysphoria and discomfort, like maybe that's okay. I mean, maybe that's that's all right for me then too. Mm -hmm. So by kind of having shared suffering, I think it makes the suffering more bearable. But, but also I really think we need to recalibrate our expectations. I, I know that, that part of my role as a psychiatrist is to re-educate patients about what what they should really be expecting from their lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like that that 
sort of burst the bubble. You know, every attic thinks that their interior experience is wholly unique and that nobody can relate to it. And their right. problems are just so off the rails. That, right. And that leads to the shame and the embarrassment and the inability to kind of connect with another human being and be honest about yeah. what that behavior is. Yes, yeah, the terminal uniqueness. I mean, the amount of courage that that, sex addict guy had to summon to be so open with you about what he was actually doing Amazing. is tremendous. I know. And that's why my patients are my heroes. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, what he what he has had to overcome in his life and what the discipline required every single day for him to stay into recovery, that's incredible. Right, it's superhuman. It is superhuman. Yeah, and also, you know, not for nothing, like, the level of creativity and craftiness and resourcefulness that the addict, the links that the addict will go to, to fill that need. I mean, in that guy's case, it's like, it's unbelievable, right? Like if you can just get that person healthy and find a healthy outlet for that level of right. concentrated mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. energy, yeah, um, it's, you know, it's a powerful thing. Well, kind of like what you did with your life, right? You took that energy and you channeled it into a whole new way of being, which is a really, high standard in your life, right? You have to exert, I mean, maybe it's not, I shouldn't assume it requires discipline, but you know, you've chosen a path that is not easy in terms of your your diet and your fitness and, and all of that. It's a, I don't know, you tell me, but it's- Yeah, it, it, well, it's, it's it, you know, I, I guess what the way I would characterize it is I work hard in my recovery. I have plenty of character defects. My alcoholism manifests itself in, in all manner of you know, errant behaviors. But I've made peace with the fact that uh, my disposition is you know, attracted to extremes and I've tried to find healthy outlets for that. You know, people are always, oh, you just transferred your alcoholism onto ultra endurance events, or you have an eating disorder because you have this restrictive <laughs> diet. And, you know, I, I'll acknowledge that there's truth in all of those things. Whether those are addictive relationships, I'm not quite so sure because they have moved my life forward. Right. Like they haven't, they haven't created those negative consequences right. that my, you know, my alcohol use did. Right. Yes, and you know, you your personality structure. I'm assuming, but this is sort of a, my job. Um, you know, you have an intensity to you, and and your your intensity has to find an outlet, and you have to find a healthy and adaptive one. Sure. And, and you have, and and, I'm, and it's dopamine inducing. That's right. You know, for sure. That's right. You that's know? right. And and as somebody who makes their living online, like I'm not immune from. Ooh, how many people listen to that, or how right. many? You know, what kind of response did this podcast right. get, or that? Instagram post right, get. Right. And yeah. I have to be really careful yes. around that. Yes, you do. And you have to like probably do your inventory and be like, am I okay with this? And why what's driving this and what, you know, what kind of needs are coming up? Yeah. I mean, sometimes people ask me, well, I've seen people who get into recovery through 12 steps, Alcoholics Anonymous. It's like they just it's a cult and they just get addicted to Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm like, so fine. Yeah, yeah. right. Like yeah. I mean, did, did you see their life before and their life after? It's like pretty good now, right? Mm -hmm. So who cares? Yeah, it's interesting. What is the meaning of life? What happens when we die? What is our purpose here? If like me, you ponder these delicious existential questions, I have got just the thing for you. 
It's called Soul Boom. It's a podcast hosted by everyone's favorite best friend and my friend, the deep thinking and deeply hilarious Rain Wilson, where he communes with intellectuals and entertainers, theologians and philosophers in intimate exchanges that tickle the mind, heart, and yes, the soul. Subscribe to Soul Boom on YouTube or wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. You are listening to this podcast because you care about improving your health and your well being. But this quest is incomplete if you have yet to add my friend Dr. Rangan Chatterjee's Feel Better, Live More podcast into your listening quiver. An RRP favorite and someone I'm personally quick to call when I'm in need of good advice. From nutrition to mindset, fitness, and relationships, each episode is packed with the tools you need to become the architect of your health. Subscribe to Feel Better, Live More, available wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. There are certain rare people who have a powerful voice and know how to use it. My friend Amanda Decadene is one such human. The podcast is called The Conversation because it is the conversation. A groundbreaking series of raw and honest exchanges on the issues that matter most. Mental health, sex, politics, ambition, gender roles, and more. Listen to The Conversation wherever you get your podcasts and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. On that piece of 12 step, you know, like I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm very indoctrinated in that. It saved my life. It continues to save my life. It's, you know, the priority of, you know, of my life to stay sober and help another alcoholic achieve sobriety. You know, my, my friends, my community are all, you know, part of this. And I find myself, you know, kind of confronting the fact that every year there's somebody who comes up with some new, homespun, you know, way of getting sober and staying sober and everything you thought you knew about AA is wrong. And now we have enter stage left psychedelic, you know, protocols for, for treating addiction and other mental health disorders, et cetera. And, you know, it's, it's always, I'm constantly being, I always go back to AA and 12 step um, and I have a challenged relationship with my openness to those other things because I know it's worked for me. So I'm curious about how you think about the recovery context and the kind of protocols that are available to us. To me, AA is one of the most remarkable social movements of the past 100 years. When I have a patient who comes into my office who's been in recovery through 12 steps or is, is thinking about recovery through 12 steps, I'm like, hallelujah because those patients are easier to manage and get better and stay better longer. Mm. So um, I think it's a remarkable movement. There is so much wisdom there. As I write about in my book, I try to really elucidate what the neuroscience behind some of the things that AA has been teaching for a hundred years. Like I have a whole chapter on truth telling and why it's so important to tell the truth and what is the neuroscience possibly behind why truth telling allows us to be in recovery and to manage our compulsive overconsumption. So I think it's a remarkable organization. I think there's 
divine wisdom in it. And I think that a bunch of the AA bashing that's happened in the last 10, 15 years is just misinformed and misguided. Mm -hmm. You know, a Cochrane review recently came out that really looked at the scientific evidence behind AA, and there's also good science to support it. So it's not just that my clinical experience tells me that it works and and your personal experience, but if you look at the data, I mean, people who actively engage in AA and other 12 steps do better, longer, even then people who get some kind of professional therapy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I feel like it's it's sort of lazy and, and easy to just take shots at it and say, well, it yeah. was I tried it, it wasn't for me. Well, right. did you try it? Like, yeah. what did you actually right. do, you know? Well, and I think it's important to acknowledge that it's not the path for everyone, right? It's yeah. not the path for everyone, but that doesn't mean that it's, like not a good path, right? That doesn't mean that somehow, you know, you throw, you throw the whole thing out the window just because it didn't work for you or you had a bad experience. And then of course, I absolutely agree with you. I mean, when people say they've tried it in the past and it didn't work, I'm always like, well, try it again. You know, mm-hmm. this, might be, this might be the time that it really takes. And for my most severely addicted patients, it's almost universally the best option. And the data support that for the more severely addicted, 12 steps may actually work better than anything else. Mm. People get tripped up on the God part. Yes, they do, yeah. So I'm interested in, in, as a neuroscientist, as a psychiatrist, how do you conceptualize the role of spirituality in all of this? Because it is such a core precept tenet of, of 12 step. And I think that gets back to how we started where you talked about just feeling totally broken. To me, that is the fundamental spiritual pivot. When we acknowledge our brokenness, that is when we can give it over to something outside of ourselves. And that can take many different forms. But the the, the key piece there is acknowledging that we are not in control. Um, and that when we ask the universe, such as it were, you know, to guide us or help us, that simple reorientation totally changes like Mm -hmm. decision-making. It changes so many things about how we proceed in our lives, the sort of, you know, cognitive math of decision-making or or what to do next. And and I know I've experienced that for, for other reasons, not related to addiction. And I know that's the fundamental pivot that my patients experience, that kind of feeling utterly broken and then looking outside themselves, something larger than themselves um, in order to pick those pieces up again and yeah. move on. Yeah, that idea of, of surrender and yes. the kind of humility that ensues right. with that right. is, a, is, a, is a tall mountain to climb for yes. a lot of people. But, and it was, it was difficult for me, but that's really where things kind of open up and you yeah. are able to reframe your relationship with how you're living. Yes, right, it's, it's, a, it's a total, game changer really when when you make that pivot and it's it's amazing the good things that come from doing that yeah um, let's talk about withdrawal a little bit um, back to the the biochemistry of everything obviously you know every substance has a different half life and the withdrawal from whatever you're doing is gonna be different, but what's going on in your brain? You talked about the the kind of uh, seesaw and the way that dopamine operates. When somebody is withdrawing from a substance and are you know, they're, they're kind of experiencing the pain that comes with that, 
what is going on and and what does it take to kind of get past that to the other side? So there's a distinction between acute withdrawal and protracted withdrawal. Acute withdrawal is essentially where the body manifests the opposite of whatever the drug does. So if you have been using a stimulant, then in acute withdrawal, you will be sedated. If you've been using a sedative, then in acute withdrawal, you will have physiologic restlessness. And that can last anywhere between a few days to a few weeks, depending upon the substance and its half-life, as you point out. But once you get through the acute physiologic withdrawal, I think what's underappreciated generally is that there can be this sustained protracted withdrawal that can go on for months and in some cases even years, which is primarily um, psychological symptoms, again, irritability, anxiety, depression, and insomnia, as well as craving. So this is like ruminative, obsessive thinking about wanting to use. Um, and it, that can even be accompanied by sudden physiologic feelings, mm -hmm. sweating, um, stomach cramps. Um, but but that, that's the piece that I, in my mind, I visualize the pleasure pain balance chronically weighted to the side of pain because those neuroadaptation gremlins have essentially camped out there. They like it yeah. there and they're not getting off. And that is what drives relapse even after people's lives have gotten objectively better, right? They've gotten their, their spouse back, their job back. And yet, and then people see them relapse and they say, well, why would they do that? Everything was going so well. But if you put yourself in the mind of that person, what you would see is that every day they get up, they are anxious, they are irritable, they are craving. And that is what drives relapse. It's, it's sort of that, that intense physiologic and psychologic suffering, really. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, after the acute withdrawal, that, that protracted period where everything just feels gray. Yes because you're so used to those dopamine hits. Yeah. And even though your life is getting better in the back of your mind, you're just like, if I just do this one thing, like I'll be able to write that paper or yeah. get through this, this uncomfortable experience yeah. and I'm just gonna do it once. Mm -hmm. And that's the cunning, baffling and powerful component here that mystifies the non-addict yeah. because it leaves them just you know utterly confused as to why somebody would make that choice. But it's almost, impossible to avoid. Yes. Mm -hmm. Depending upon the behavior and the substance, yes. obviously some are more powerful. And what than I've others. come to appreciate is that something strange happens to our perception of time when we're in that state. So we're in that state of craving and dysphoria. It really feels like it will never end. I mean, it will, you know, in, in most cases we know with sustained abstinence, it w the, the gremlins hop off, mm -hmm. homeostasis is restored. But when we are in that state, it feels as if it will go on forever. Plus, as you said, we have a way to fix it, right? It's right there within reach. If we use again, we can relieve those feelings. So I think that's the combination of those things, the, the distorted time perception that those awful feelings will never end, even though they will, and knowing that we can make ourselves feel better if we just yeah, use. Yeah, and if you're telling the patient they're facing the prospect of possibly years of this. Right. I mean, if they're coming off benzos right. or something like that, they're in for a very long, hard road. Yes, that's right. Fortunately, in my experience, most people who abstain for one month begin to notice improvements in mood, hopefulness, 
you know, sleep. They might not be where they want to be, but they begin to see a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel. Not always, but that's the piece that then I really have to remind them of. And I say, remember how you felt when, you know, and if Mm -hmm. you can just hang in there with recovery and with abstinence, you know, incrementally in small ways, you, you will get better. And I think that's an important function that I serve kind of a cheerleader and a reminder because the hippocampus is tricky. I also think that's a major function of AA, right? That we we go, I, I, I use the we pronoun. So I'm, I'm not a member of AA, but I, I, in my clinical work, I use the we pronoun because again, I think we're all broken and humbled in the face of this problem. Um, so I'll say to patients, remember how you felt then, remember how you felt a little bit better. You've done this before. You know, you remember, you have the data from recovery. Hold that close and tincture of time alone Mm -hmm. will get you there. Are there cases where that dopamine balance never again reaches some level of homeostasis? Yeah, so unfortunately I think that that can happen. So for example, in the book that I think the case of Chris, possibly one of the things that happened to him was after so many years of, of opioids and heroin, yeah, yeah, that the only way that his balance was essentially broken, it was stuck, tilted to the side of pain. And the only way for him to feel normal is to be on, you know, what's called replacement therapy or opioid agonist therapy in the form of Suboxone, which has sustained him feeling well mm-hmm. now going on almost a decade. And I've been talking very, you know, he's doing great. It's not like he's just kind of trudging along. He's doing great. And he's so. been able to maintain that 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 level of Suboxone at a base rate. Like yes. he's not asking for more, no. you know. No, and I do see that. I, I mm-hmm. do have patients sure. for whom, for reasons we don't understand, they do seem to develop tolerance, but not him. It worked immediately it worked well it restored homeostasis he's reengaged with life and he's interesting at least somebody who never went to 12 step mm. and never really got a whole lot of psychotherapy beyond you know what what we do um but that's what works for him yeah it's so interesting i'm always amazed with by people who just figure out how to get sober and stay sober without aa and you know i've i've often thought what happens if someone like yourself develops some kind of pill that resolves, you know, al- alcoholism, addiction, um, on a biochemical level? Like, would I take it? And I wouldn't. I wouldn't trade my experiences or the richness of my life experience and what I get out of this program and this community for that option. Yeah, that's so cool, and I've heard that from so many of my patients that they get to a point in their recovery where they actually regard their disease of addiction as a gift. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember when I first came in and you would hear, you know, there's always the guy who says, I'm a grateful alcoholic. Yeah, I'm, right. What kind of fucking <laughs> asshole is that? You know, like, what are you, like how, what, what? You know, yeah. I didn't understand it. And now yeah. of course I completely understand that. Yeah. And that goes back to this, this idea of, of embracing the painful parts of life yeah. and understanding that those are, um, our greatest teachers. And yeah. if you can really learn about yourself through those experiences, you can create meaning around them that can be helpful for other people as well. Yeah, I mean, as a physician, you know, one of the things that attracted me to addiction medicine in addition to the patients themselves was the docs in recovery who, who practice addiction medicine mm. because they're not like any other types of doctors. Mm. You know, when I go to medical meetings that 
are not addiction focused. Everybody's like trying to show off how much they know more than the other guy. And then you go to, you know, an addiction medicine conference and people are like, yeah, you know, I'm X number of years in recovery and oh man, I'm struggling with this character defect and that character defect. And I'm so embarrassed by this or that or another thing I did. It's just such a cool culture. Yeah. And it's empowering. Yeah. I never get tired of hearing the stories. And I'm sure when people read your book, they're gonna be so shocked to yes. read these, but I'm so inculcated in that. Like I, I'm so used to hearing the craziest stories and I, I love it. I love the honesty and the vulnerability of all of it. And it's so empowering and, and, and it's such a beautiful expression of our shared humanity. Yes, wonderfully put. You know, when I, when I first wrote the book and I gave it to my agent and the and the editor, they were like, you know, this story of sex addiction, like maybe you could put it toward the middle uh-huh. or, you know, at the back. You just, just blasting people <laughs> right, from page right, one. Like, like they were really, they were really <laughs> yeah. worried that it just people would just be so freaked out and it would be so mm-hmm. other that it just that nobody would read it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm not gonna do that because this is exactly the point that I'm trying to make. Like pornography and sex addiction, it is everywhere. I mean, we are not we are not being truthful with mm-hmm. ourselves if we are pretending like this is not a huge problem. This is a huge problem and we need to put it up front and center. Now, the book is not just about sex addiction, it's about all kinds of addictions, but like you, I hear these stories every day. So to me, there's, they're not freaky and other. And, and, and in the book, I really relate my patient to my own kind of sex addiction mm-hmm. that I developed. And, and I wanted to do that. You know, I, as you said, I wanted to make sure that people understand like this is all of us, right? I mean, this is our shared humanity as, as you yeah, said. Yeah, yeah, I mean, a lot of people will um, remember you from The Social Dilemma. Right. You appeared in that documentary, um, and that's a beautiful, you know, starting point to have this conversation about the universality of all of this, whether it's sex addiction or online shopping or porn or gambling or you know, Twitch streaming. It doesn't matter. Like it's so ubiquitous, yeah. and on some level, we're all addicts or yes. we're all addicts in waiting. Right. Right. And yes. and so, you know, I thought it was interesting that in this book. You know, there's nothing on the cover. There's the word addiction is not used on the cover. Like this is not a book for addicts to read. This is a book for everybody to read because I think it's important that we reframe how we think about addiction and all of the levers and 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 pulleys and buttons that are out there right now just waiting to trigger us and lure us into unhealthy relationships. Yes. With substances and things and behaviors and everything, all of it out there. Yes, yep, yep, you you get it, exactly. So elaborate, I guess. <laughs> I don't know, that wasn't really a question. <laughs> but uh, you know, this this idea that we are all addicts, I think is revelatory for, yeah. and I think people will, 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 that may ruffle some feathers, like I'm not that. Like, yeah. I just know, even when I was in the depths of alcoholism, I would always look at people who were worse than me to say that I'm not this, right. as opposed to looking for ways to identify or find similarities. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the the basic wiring of the brain, we are all wired to approach pleasure and avoid pain. And that is what has kept us alive in a world of scarcity for, you know, gazillions of years. Mm-hmm. 
And the fundamental problem now is that we are not living in that world of scarcity. We live in this world of overwhelming abundance, but our, you know, our brain chemistry and our wiring hasn't changed. So when you are basically wired to seek out pleasure and avoid pain, and you live in a world surrounded by pleasure goods, infinitely available at the tap of a finger, and you're encouraged to avoid pain at all costs, you know, how could we not get addicted? Of, of course we, we are and we will. And I do think people are beginning to relate to that, especially as regards smartphones and things that we're doing online, because people are now observing their own behavior, getting, you know, losing time, getting caught up, spending way more time than they planned, having it interfere with, you know, their, their parenting or their work. Or So I do think that there, I hope that there is sort of this dawning awareness that this is a universal phenomenon mm -hmm. and that yes, we're variably vulnerable, which is to say we're not all equally going to you know, become addicted, but that we are all vulnerable to the fundamental problem now. Mm -hmm. And that we're essentially outgunned and outmatched. Yes. You know, that was a big point in the documentary yes. that you think that you have some agency here. Right. Well, think again, because right. you have no idea how much money and science has gone into removing that agency That's when right. it comes to your relationship with your devices. Yes, exactly. And also importantly, and this is again, something I learned from my patients, when we are in our addictions, we cannot see the true consequences of those behaviors. It's, I mean, you know, in the world of addiction, it's called denial, but I mean, it's really a fascinating phenomenon how we cannot objectively observe ourselves or the consequences of these compulsive behaviors until we get some distance from it and look back and then kind of go, wow, that was surreal that I did that much of that thing for mm -hmm. that long. Like that was really bizarre. And I also lied about it and, and like, <laughs> you know, did all these like fancy maneuvers <laughs> to do it more. And now I look back and it's like, I mean, I've had so many of my patients say, it's like another person. It's like, that was another person, mm. you know, which is uh, very interesting. Yeah, why did I sit on the, the toilet for an hour staring at my phone, <laughs> you know? There are a lot of teenagers out there spending a lot of time in the bathrooms these days, I can tell you that. Uh, listen, I've done it. Like I'll call myself <laughs> out right now on that. When you were talking about uh, the doctors that are your colleagues that are in recovery, it reminded me of my experience in treatment. I went to a treatment center where there was a lot of uh, professionals there um, on diversion. So a lot of doctors uh -huh. and a lot of pilots, like the two people that you literally give all of your agency <laughs> over to. You know, it's very horrifying yeah. to realize that surgeons and anesthesiologists yeah. and commercial airline pilots were, yeah. were in treatment. And I wanted to share anonymously some of those stories when I was writing Finding Ultra and my, my publisher said the same thing. They're like, it's too crazy, you can't do that. <laughs> but to hear these, you know, tales from anesthesiologists like stealing fentanyl and, and how it made them more productive and leads to ketamine and jumping off roofs and all kinds of crazy stuff. Right. Like there was a doctor who was taking just handfuls of Vicodin every day. There was another um, neurosurgeon who was a IV morphine addict, like, you know, it's wild. You know, being smart and being highly educated is not any protection against addiction and might even make you more vulnerable because you think You're a, that you'll a know. Superman. Yeah, or that yeah. you'll you'll know when you've crossed the line. I mean, you know, I had I've had I've treated many docs in addiction over the years, but 
the one that comes to mind now as an anesthesiologist, you know, who had just a big stash of pills that he would, you know, take them in all different com combinations and permutations. And he just thought, well, I'm an anesthesiologist, right. you know? <laughs> so yeah. like, I know how to dose this stuff until he didn't, you know what I mean? There's gotta be a higher percentage of anesthesiologists that become addicts versus other doctors. Yes, higher percentage, percentage of anesthesiologists and psychiatrists. Mm. Why psychiatrists? Oh, you know, we're kind of stuck in is our the, heads. The, is it the brokenness that allures you into the profession to begin with? I think it's the kind of, I mean, I, I would be, I, I wouldn't want to speak for all psychiatrists, but I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, many people who go into psychiatry have family members with mental illness. And so mm -hmm. there's kind of a mission driven purpose, wanting to help others. Um, sometimes it's, you know, being broken and wanting to help yourself. But I think that's become less and less true as the field has attracted a lot of very high powered students who are really into neuroscience and such. I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, with anesthesiologists, you know, the, the assumption is because of increased access to things like opioids and benzos. Um, but I think there's probably a self-selection process where you've got people who are already maybe addicted or vulnerable or almost addicted who then subconsciously choose anesthesia because maybe because of the access, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, you're, in anesthesiology, you're just dealing with those all the time. And I hear these crazy, like you get these tiny little vials of fentanyl and, and they would like take a little bit of it and fill the rest of it with water and yeah. all the lengths that they would yes. go to be undetected yes. and tapping yeah. into the, the pharma closet. But you know, I mean, doctors are just regular people yeah. right? with all the same regular problems. I mean, in some ways, what's so tragic about about doctors and addiction and the problems of getting into recovery when you're in that profession is because I think the shame is more pronounced because you're supposed to be this healer who's got it all together. One of the things that was kind of scary for me in writing Dopamine Nation was that obviously I disclose, you know, ways that I'm kind of messed up. So, I mean, that that has brought up a lot of shame for me and kind of worrying what other people will think. It, it is fascinating how afraid we are to do that. I think everybody's afraid to do that, mm -hmm. but I I, th I wonder if, if physicians are maybe a little more afraid. Yeah, yeah, I would suspect that that's true. But there has to be a cathartic aspect to that for you as well, right? A freeing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I really try to live a transparent life where everything I say and do, if it were published on the front page of a major newspaper, I would be okay with it. And so it's not really maybe as much of a leap for me to disclose those things as it would be for, you know, somebody in another field of medicine or somebody with a different past than I've had. But, you know, I mean, I've never read a doctor authored book where they're nothing but the most wonderful healer. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Right, right. And that leaves you distrustful. Yeah. There's something about leading with vulnerability yeah. and the honesty, you know, incumbent in that, that leads me to feel like this person has more integrity. It works, it, it, it works counterintuitively to the way yes. you think it might. Yes, well, I'm glad to hear that. And I agree with you. And in my own psychiatric practice, I've really changed the way that I view disclosure. So we're, we are trained to not disclose anything about ourselves, to be sort of that removed Freudian type of person who um, you know, listens empathically and strategizes with the patient about how to get well, but doesn't actually disclose mm. our own thing. But I'm, I'm not sure I believe that anymore. First of all, I mean, 
our patients can see through us. I mean, we we bring ourselves to the practice, but but also I think that it's helpful for patients to know that like we're all broken, you know, and we all struggle. And so I, I try to do it thoughtfully. I'm like I'm not like airing my dirty laundry with my patients, you know, going on and on about my problems. Mm-hmm. But I do strategically talk about my own anxiety, you know, my own depression, my own insomnia, um, my own sense of life being, you know, kind of a drudgery at times. That um, is interesting. Yeah, because you think of the therapeutic context as be, you're, you're this blank slate, right. right? Who never once, you know, gives any clue as to what you think or who you are. Right, right. And, and it's so funny because the expressions on my patients' faces, like when I, when I do that, initially they're sort of like this raised eyebrow, like, right. you just get, me like yeah. get me out of here. Get me out of here. This lady's crazy. Or but, like, this is about me, not <laughs> right, you. Right, no, I don't, I don't get that so much because I don't go on and on. Uh-huh. But there's a sort of like, there's initially this alarm is like, like, I don't want to be treated by a crazy psychiatrist. But then I think on some core level, they recognize that, well, maybe she's, you know, not, not that crazy. And maybe there's a reason that she's telling me that. Although I did have this one patient who was telling me about his flying phobia. And I'm like, oh yeah, I, I get that. And then he goes, well, and I like to sit to the, next to the window because I feel like if I can see the ground somehow, that makes it less likely that we're actually going to fall. And I'm like, I'm right with you there. I always get the window seat. <laughs> <laughs> and that's when he was like, crazy. <laughs> but he came funny. back. He came back and he managed to get off his benzodiazepines. So wow. it was a success story. Where are we in terms of the number of people that qualify as being addicted, maybe specifically to substances right now? Like it's on the rise, right? There's a crazy spike in the percentage of people that are dealing with some form of substance addiction. Yeah, so I mean, here's a crazy statistic. 50% of the world's deaths attributable to addiction occur, well, 50% of the world's deaths are attributable to addiction in those under age 50. Mm. So, I mean, that's a whole lot of people, right? If we've got more than half of the world's deaths due to addiction in people under 50, that's kind of scary. And then if you look at specifically things like alcohol. So rates of alcohol have gone up in the last 20 years, including in groups that were previously immune to alcohol addiction. Rates of alcohol use disorder or alcohol addiction have gone up 50% in people over age 65. From when to when? Between the late 1990s and today. Mm -hmm. And they've gone up 80% in women which is a really fascinating change. Wow. So, so it, what do you make of that? Well, it's complicated. First of all, for, for older people, what I make of it is that we are living longer, right? And that as people age and their brains age, a lot of folks who have been able to kind of moderate their use for most of their middle years are finding in their latter years that something changes biochemically, (laughs) psychologically, Uh and all of a sudden they pop off into addiction. I see these people all the time. People, you know, basically like baby boomers, right? Who's like, I've smoked pot every day since I was 25. I never had a problem. All of a sudden I'm dabbing, right? And Mm -hmm. I'm, and it's unmanageable. And and that's that's in some ways harder because now you have, you know, 65 years of habit and learned experience around using every day. You're going to give that up when you're, you know, 65, 70, it's a lot, you, mm. you have less brain plasticity mm-hmm. to form new habits. So I think the, the older people phenomenon is both a function of just living longer, having more time, maybe more boredom. And then also the more 
potent drugs that we have now, the more variety, people slipping into addiction in older age. For women, it's really fascinating because, I mean, I see that all the time uh, where, you know, traditionally the rates of addiction of men to women, the ratio has been like five to one, right. five men to every one woman with addiction. Now it's it's one to one in millennials. I mean, it's, it's like the equal amounts. And I think, you know, I mean, I could speculate on, on why that is. I th- I, and I, I guess I will speculate. I think that, you know, with, with the women's movement and, you know, more opportunity and more equality, I think there are trade-offs, right? That the, that the burden that comes with, with, with burdens that may be leading women uh, into, into more addictive tendencies. Mm. Plus you've got more potency and more variety. Right, like yeah, that. the, that's, what, that's what came to mind for me yeah. immediately, like the, just the proliferation of yeah. so many different drugs now and the potency of them. Yes, right. Compared and that, to and that, what it was And that's a big part ago. of it, that's a big part of it. But I also think part of it is, you know, culturally, like women weren't really supposed to mm-hmm. imbibe. And now like that's not really, that that those cultural mores aren't really there anymore, yeah. you know, for better and for worse. Yeah, that's interesting. And how does that break down um, in terms of opioid addiction? Like, what percentage of that can be attributed to opioids? In terms of addiction to opioids, I don't know if we have consistent science on that. You know, some 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 studies show that women are more likely to be addicted to opioids. Others, other, other studies show men. One thing we know for sure is that men are more likely to die from opioids. And that's sort of interesting and, and not entirely clear why that is. Um, but I think in general, the rates break down to about 50-50. Right, and then in, just in terms of addiction at, you know, at large, like in this spike that we're seeing in the rates of addiction, how much of that overall what portion of that is opioid related? Well, if you look at the current drug overdose deaths, the majority involves some kind of opioid. Polypharmacy is the norm in drug overdose deaths. And in fact, what confers a lot of the risk is polypharmacy. So mixing a bunch of drugs together is mm-hmm. a lot more dangerous than monotherapy. But a lot of times people are taking a mixture of drugs and don't know it, right? Because a counterfeit pill that they think is a Xanax bar actually has fluelprazolam, a benz- benzodiazepine designer drug, plus a little bit of fentanyl in it. And they don't know that that's what they're taking. Wow. Um, um, what did you ask me? Sorry. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm just trying to get at, I want to kind of segue into the, the, ho- the whole opioid crisis because this is right. you know, obviously an area of expertise for you. Um, and as a, you know, foundational to that, like just getting a sense of how big the opioid problem is and, yeah. and what percentage of addiction overall it kind of commandeers. Okay. so. There's somewhere between two and 15 million Americans today addicted to opioids. Why is the range so large? Because the way that we do those surveys varies a lot. According to the National Survey of Drug Use and Health, it's about 2 million Americans addicted to opioids Mm. with about 11 to 12 million Americans misusing prescription opioids. So slightly different misuse is not necessarily addiction. Addiction is crossing into kind of a crossing a threshold there. So but on the out, on the outer range, you know, some studies who have included, for example, homeless populations or incarcerated populations have gotten up to as high as 15 million Americans addicted to opioids. So it's by any count millions of Americans. 
um, either addicted to and or misusing opioids. And then if you look at opioid-related overdose deaths, what you see is that they've essentially been rising steadily since the late 1990s. They seem to go down and plateau a little bit in 2018, but in 2020, they rose the biggest percentage they have mm. in the last 20 years. Is that pandemic related? Yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, we think it's pandemic related, a combination of an ongoing potent drug supply, especially including fentanyl, which is 50 to 100 times more potent than morphine or heroin, combined with increased isolation and decreased access to treatment. Right, so wild. Yeah. So let's talk about how we got here. I mean, you wrote this other book, Drug Dealer MD. It's a pretty fascinating dissection of the origins of the opioid crisis, how we got here and the, you know, multiple contributing factors to it. Talk a little bit about that. The yeah. idea of, of big pharma and big medicine being in cahoots to you know, create this problem that we're having such difficulty figuring out. Yeah, so in the early 2000s, I started seeing more and more patients coming in addicted to the opioids that their doctors were prescribing. And that was really at the beginning of my own personal re-education around addiction and how to help people with addiction. And I learned so much from my patients and my colleagues about addiction medicine and really it transformed the way that I practice. So I assumed that if I just educated my colleagues about addiction, they would all also see the light mm. and stop prescribing in that way. And what I discovered was that even with re-education, even when, for example, I consulted on a patient and let them know, oh, by the way, this person went to 10 other doctors in the same month to get Vicodin, mm -hmm. you should stop prescribing for them. They didn't stop prescribing. And that was really the moment where I thought, what is going on here? This is really bizarre. This is a really good person. This is a highly educated person. Why on earth are they continuing to prescribe in this way? And what I then discovered through my research is all of the invisible incentives inside of medicine that keep doctors prescribing in ways that are orthogonal to patients mm -hmm. actually getting better. And the most shocking discovery for me was the extent to which the opioid pharmaceutical industry had essentially infiltrated every aspect of medicine to promote opioid prescribing. And their influence was so enormous and so powerful that essentially doctors were not able to not prescribe. And the vehicles that pressured them into it were shame, basically mm -hmm. saying pain is undertreated. And the reason it's undertreated is because you are opioid phobic, afraid of opioids. So you need to prescribe more. It was things like the Joint Commission creating guidelines and quality measures that said, every doctor has to ask every patient about pain, whether or not they look like they're in pain and use this pain scale from one to 10 and prescribe opioids if they endorse pain. It was things like the Federation of State Medical Board saying, if you don't treat pain using opioids effectively, you're gonna get sued, you're opening yourself up to a lawsuit. And behind all of those regulatory bodies and all of those professional medical societies were millions of pharmaceutical dollars. Mm. Yeah, and in order to really understand this, you have to understand the history of how the medical establishment has thought about pain and what it means and how to treat it. 
Yeah. I mean, so for example, the whole concept of chronic pain, pain that lasts every day for more than three months, three months being the time that we consider normal tissue healing should occur. That concept of chronic pain didn't even exist until like the middle of, you know, the 1900s. Prior to that, pain had been considered to be a downstream effect of a disease or an injury. The whole phenomenon of more and more people developing these chronic pain conditions, as well as the industry that goes along to treat it, is, you know, about 50 years old. Mm. And that industry, in effect, of course, in a way has generated the pharmaceutical companies that now serve that cause, um, you know, to the extent that we have the opioid epidemic. There is so much health information out there. It can feel overwhelming and leave even the most well-intentioned confused about what's what and who to trust. Well, the first person that I call when I'm seeking clarity is my friend and nutrition expert, Simon Hill, host of the fantastic podcast, The Proof. Each week, Simon matches wits with brilliant scientists, translating their evidence-based insights into actionable tools for better well-being. Subscribe to The Proof, available wherever you get your podcasts, and explore other groundbreaking series at voicingchange.media. I'm super proud to announce my next venture, Voicing Change Media. This beautiful consortium of thinkers, storytellers, artists, and visionaries all committed to fostering meaningful exchanges and sharing thought-provoking content. Voicing Change Media will feature shows like The Proof with Simon Hill, Soul Boom with Rain Wilson, Mentor Buffet with Alexi Pappas, Feel Better Live More with Dr. Rangan Chatterjee, and The Conversation with Amanda Decadene. You can explore this network and all its offerings at voicingchange.media. Right. So originally, pain was construed as something that potentially had benefits in terms of accelerating healing or helping you to develop some kind of physical or emotional resiliency. At a certain point, the thinking shifted to no, all pain is bad. It creates all kinds of trauma and it should be ameliorated at all costs. Enter the pharmaceutical industry and a whole infrastructure around making sure that nobody ever feels pain ever and demonizing any doctors who are not going to ensure that that patient walks out of the office armed with everything they need to never experience pain. And that early idea proved to be untrue, right? And we're seeing the kind of waste byproduct of wrongheadedness. Yes, exactly. I mean, not not only did it turn out to be untrue, but it turns out that taking opioids every day for long periods of time can actually make pain worse through this process of opioid-induced hyperalgesia, which is basically the pleasure-pain balance, neuroadaptation, and changing set points around pain such that pain will get worse if you take an opioid every day to treat pain. And you're absolutely right when, you know, in the middle 1800s, when general anesthesia was first invented, the leading surgeons in this country actually were resistant to using it because they felt like experiencing some amount of pain, you know, boosted the cardiovascular Mm -hmm. response, 
boosted the immune response and it was good for tissue healing. Now, I don't know of any objective science showing that that's true, that it, pain actually um, expedites healing, but there, there are studies now showing that opioids can slow healing down. Right, right. That's a shocking thing to realize, right? Yeah. yeah. And much like the cigarette industry, the pharmaceutical industry, put a lot of time, money and effort into creating a narrative here. I, I think I read some something about, there was a guy, what was his name, who was propagating this, this narrative that only 1% of people who were on opioids would develop some kind of addiction. And that became kind of like the trope that doctors would think it became an entrenched kind of talking point. Yeah, so that basically started with Purdue's promotion of OxyContin. In 1980, there was a letter to the editor, which doesn't count as a study. It's just like a, the equivalent of a medical journal tweet uh -huh. by two individuals called Porter and Jick saying that in a cohort of 11,000 hospitalized patients, they only had four people who manifested signs and symptoms of opioid addiction. So in 11,000 patients who got opioids to treat their pain, only four of them got addicted, which comes out to less than 1% in mm -hmm. that population. And that one tiny little data point, which is not really a study, was then used by Purdue Pharma in their promotion of OxyContin to say, hey, if you're a doctor using opioids to treat a patient with pain, less than 1% of those individuals will get addicted to opioids. It turns out that is totally untrue. A meta-analysis by Vols et al., which came out around 2015, shows that one in four patients prescribed an opioid for a bona fide pain condition will develop an opioid mm. use problem and one in 10 will get severely addicted. Wow. But those kinds of messages that addiction is rare or uncommon or few will get addicted as long as you're a doctor and they're a patient in pain was really believed by most of the medical establishment through the first part of you know this century. And almost on a, like a magical biological level, like there must be something magically protective biologically if a person has pain when you give them an opioid, like somehow that's gonna erase the addictive part, but but it doesn't, it's not true. It doesn't work like that. Right. So, you know, the conspiracy minded person inside of me, you know, <laughs> pictures the mustache twirling guy at the, you know, at the, the board meeting at, you know, pharmaceutical company X getting on the phone with, you know, I don't know, you know, somebody at the FDA, like, how does this all break down? Like what's conspiracy and what's, reality in terms of how the the tectonic plates of medicine and pharmacy and government kind of created this situation that has produced the crisis that we're in? Well, I mean, I'm not sure I would use the word conspiracy to describe it, but what we definitely have is misleading promotion on the part of opioid manufacturers that represented as science what in fact was untrue messages about what opioids can and can't do, essentially overstating the benefit and understating the risk. In a very fertile ground of healthcare providers who wanted to believe it. Why did they want to, want to believe it? Because medicine has transformed in the past 30 years into basically assembly line production quota incentives. 
we have to get patients in and out. We have to do it quickly. We have to make sure that they're satisfied customers. When their insurance changes, we may never see them again. They'll see another doctor. There's a different doctor for every different body part. So the misleading messages were also delivered to a population and, and, and institutions for which those were very convenient myths. And I think it's the that combination, the intense lobbying, the intense promotion, the millions of dollars given to the FDA, the DEA, other regulatory bodies, um, you know, promoting these messages. And then you've got healthcare providers who, who frankly really want to believe them because they're seeing more and more patients with terrible and debilitating pain mm -hmm. for which they don't have the time or the energy or the resources to provide something like, you know, a, a plant-based diet as a way to get well or even physical therapy, right? They've got to get them in and out the door. Yeah, and then layer on top of that, the prospect of malpractice if you don't treat right. that pain, right? right? So you have this misalignment of incentives right. that create this problem. Yes, exactly. Yeah, and the pernicious thing is that this becomes the entry point for so many people who otherwise might have never experienced any form of, of addiction, right? And I know so many people in the program who end up relapsing because they get they go in for a knee surgery or they have a back problem or they've been sober for 20 years yeah. and it takes them out. Yeah. No, it's terrible. So in the 1960s, if you asked somebody who was addicted to heroin what their first exposure to opioids was, 80% would say that it was heroin, right? They started with heroin mm -hmm. as their first opioid. In the early part of this century or today, if you ask people who use heroin, what was their first exposure? 80% of them will say it was a prescription right. opioid. Yeah, that's crazy. So this spike right. in heroin use yeah. that we're seeing is really a function of opioid addiction. And Prescription when, opioid addiction. When you've, when you've exploited all the doctors who will tolerate you and you've got nowhere else to go, you're gonna find the, the heroin dealer. That's exactly yeah. right. That's exactly right. And when, then when that heroin supply is spiked with fentanyl, then you've got people who are, you know, who are dying because fentanyl is so much more potent. Mm. I know that you've testified on the Hill, you've spoken at the White House, you're involved in you know, policy on some level. What's your sense of where we're at now with redressing this crisis? Well, I mean, just last week I was in New York testifying in the first jury trial of this opioid litigation. And as you probably read in the paper today, there's a $26 billion settlement in the offing. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Exp tell me about that. I was in New York. I would have come oh, to the trial. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was trial. open to the public. So you could have come. <laughs> Seven grueling days. Yeah, tell me about this. Uh, well, it was it was fascinating. So, I mean, first of all, the, the opioid litigation is, is understandably confusing to people because people think that the settlement with Purdue that happened, you know, mm -hmm. some already, I think last year, even though it's still evolving, is sort of the whole deal and the done deal. What they don't realize is that there's something called the multi-district litigation, which is essentially thousands of states and counties coming together to sue not just Purdue and other opioid manufacturers, but also the distributors that truck the opioids mm. from the manufacturers to the pharmacies and the pharmacies who have dispensed these opioids uh, to the public, thereby creating what the lawyers call a public nuisance. And the idea of a public nuisance is just that the actions on the part of the opioid pharmaceutical industry led to and caused the opioid epidemic. So there have been a series of bellwether trials for the multi-district litigation that I've been involved in as a medical expert witness. I wrote a report. 
I've testified. But the the trial in New York last week is the first jury trial um, that is that is trying this. And it started out with I think eleven defendants, and Johnson and Johnson settled, the distributors settled. So what's remaining is just a smattering of um, opioid manufacturers, not including. Um, Purdue, for example, which has declared bankruptcy. You can't sue somebody mm. who's in bankruptcy. Mm. So it's a very- is Purdue behind uh, OxyContin? Yes, What's so it, Purdue, right? yep. Yeah. Purdue is behind, behind OxyContin. Mm-hmm. And they were sort of like the genius, uh, so to speak, like the, the sort of um, malevolent genius behind marketing um, opioids in a way that would be extremely palatable to prescribers and would overstate the benefits and understate the risks, and then others, you know, copied them, um, you know, in suit. So what would be great is if there could be some kind of global settlement so that all these different county and state trials would come together and be a part of that global settlement so that the litigation could end Mm. because we can't keep trying this over and over again. Um, And the, the good news is that it looks like a, a global settlement, this 26 plus billion dollars may actually be in the offing. It's not a done deal that all the different states and counties in the multi-district litigation have to agree to it. Um, but, um, you know, hopefully the details will be able to work out. Sure. Work, worked out. Yeah, because it's a settlement, it doesn't create some kind of case law precedent, but certainly a chilling effect, right? So what is the, what is, what is the, the kind of implications of that settlement and how does that impact how pharma kind of thinks about this and moves forward. Oh yes, I'm remembering that you have a law degree. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it's been a while. No, no, it's good. Well, that muscle, so what's but. interesting is so settlements are, and again, I'm not a lawyer, but this is what I've learned uh, through this, this experience. Um, so settlements can take many different forms. This settlement that's in the offing, importantly, the defendants are not admitting to wrongdoing right there, but mm-hmm. they're providing money to abate the harms of the opioid epidemic. And one of the things that will, that looks like will come out of it um, in terms of monitoring diversion or basically pills going to people other than who was intended is um, a some external agency, which I think is really good so uh, to monitor diversion. Because essentially what's what we have now is that the opioid um, pharmaceutical industry is supposed to police itself. And that has not worked out right. very well. <laughs> <laughs> it never does. No, it never does. Just so, like big tech. I mean, the, the, yeah. the parallels here are unbelievable. Yes, yes, mm-hmm. that's right. So um, one of the major things that looks like may come out of this settlement is a better policing system that is not the industry itself, policing itself. But then also importantly, um, billions of dollars going to states and counties to do things like help treat opioid addiction. You know, that was in the tobacco settlement, that was also what the money was intended for. Most of the money went to balancing state and county budgets and didn't end up going to people who had been harmed. So one of the things that people are trying to be very thoughtful about with this settlement is making sure that the money actually goes to the people that that have been harmed. Mm -hmm. Importantly, this settlement does not include monies going to affected individuals and their families. It's a public nuisance claim. Mm -hmm. So it's going to states and counties to address the community, not not individual claims. Mm. It's interesting. So where does that money get spent ultimately? Yeah, great question. I mean, I think it's gonna be budgeted at the state and county levels. Right. 
which means it's probably not gonna get spent in, a, in an effective way. <laughs> I hope that's not true. I hope that's not true. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic. There are so many good and well-intentioned people you know, involved in this process. Mm-hmm. And I, I really do hope that, that the money is put to good effect. I, I think it will be, I mean, not all of it, but I think much of it, you know, which, which brings up another point. One of the main ways that we as a society currently pay for addiction treatment is through grants from the federal government. And the reason that that's problematic is because by relying on these temporary grants, we never build an infrastructure inside of medicine to target and treat addiction. Like the way we have excellence, like centers for Mm -hmm. cancer treatment, right? Or centers for diabetes treatment. What we need is addiction treatment centers, like right at Stanford University, right? Or whatever the hospital is, there should be a unit and there should be, you know, um, a specialized clinic building and inpatient beds. We don't have that. And so I do hope that that this money will be put toward actually building the infrastructure that can be a part of, you know, the weft and weave of medical practice and not siloed outside of that. Yeah, 100% we need better rehabilitation across the board. And that should be, especially with the opioid crisis and all the attention it's receiving, it should be something that would um, marshal the political will to create something that could be of greater benefit to those that suffer. I mean, it's such a, you know, on on one level kind of a no brainer, right? This is what we should be doing. We shouldn't be putting these people in jail. We should be treating these people and rehabilitating them. At the same time, kind of big rehab, you know, if there is such a phrase is is rife with all kinds of crazy corruption and and problems. There's a lot of predatory behavior, especially in the kind of sober living ecosystem right now. Yeah, this is such a, a tough thing because I, as a treatment provider, am very grateful for the good residential facilities and the good sober living environments mm-hmm. out there um, without which, um, some of my patients wouldn't have a hope, but you're, you're absolutely right. We, we don't have adequate oversight. We don't have quality measures. We don't have good outcome data. I mean, we know treatment works and we know people get into recovery with or without treatment. So, I mean, there's a lot of reason for hope and optimism, but you're absolutely right. It's been siloed and marginalized in medicine. And so we have not gathered the data to really be able to guide building this infrastructure going forward and, and we need to do that. Yeah. Um, one of the things that that is unique to our time is the proliferation of certain types of pharmacology that have now been mainstreamed and legalized. So we have pot essentially being legal now. It's ubiquitous, it's everywhere. You walk down the street in New York or Los Angeles, you can't help but smell it. There's dispensaries everywhere that look like the Apple store, billboards all over the place. At the same time, we have a lot of interesting science going into clinical applications for psychedelic compounds. And I think what's going on there is super interesting. But for me, as somebody who's been in recovery for a long time, I, you know, these are like trigger points for me. It's like, oh, 
pot should be part of your wellness routine or what ails you can be found in doing this mushroom trip under supervision. And I find this tension because on the one hand, it's like, no, I'm clean and sober and this is what I do versus you know, people who I respect telling me like, actually you, you might find some benefit in exploring these things. And when you tell an addict that the solution to what ails them can be found in a mind altering substance that ends up renting a lot of space in my head. So <laughs> yeah. walk me through how you think about yeah. this, you know, kind of cultural development that we're seeing right now. I have to admit that I am equally ambivalent. You know, as somebody who's been treating people um, with addiction, getting into recovery for going on more than 20 years, it is very hard for me to believe that a chronic relapsing and remitting illness is going to be effectively treated by, you know, three doses of LSD or psilocybin or whatever it is. I just am very skeptical of that. On top of that, you know, I, I want to try to have an open mind about the potential utility of these agents in certain very rarefied conditions. But I think that overall the messaging is very dangerous because exactly as you describe, I have many patients who have been in recovery and are doing well, who all of a sudden, you know, read a book that says that they can have some kind of spiritual awakening if they take ecstasy or they take psilocybin. And then that, as you say, they, they actually ruminate on it and they begin, they think more and more and then everybody else is doing it. And, you know, someone famous said that they did it and it, mm -hmm. you know, it was so great. Then I've got a really big job, you know, there. First of all, I don't have a crystal ball, you know, I don't know what's going to happen to them, but my instinct, my experience and my knowledge of the science tells me that would not be a good thing. Mm that would not be a good thing mm -hmm. for somebody with the disease of addiction. And so, you know, how to, then I have to like pull back from that and sort of say, well, you know, I hear you, but gee whiz, like, look at, look at the potential risks. And, you know, sometimes they listen and sometimes they don't. And the ones who don't almost universally end up in a very, very bad place. Mm -hmm. I had a patient who was in great recovery from his opioid use disorder, who got it into his head because of things that he had read that he could treat his depression with ketamine. He ended up getting ketamine on the dark web, dosing it like every nine minutes for three days, ending up in the ICU <laughs> yeah. with I'm like, yeah. like wow. irreversible neurological damage, irreversible in this PhD, brilliant PhD student who completely relied on his brain for, you know, his profession. And, you know, he's better now, but, Jeez, like was really? that, so was that person uh, uh, an addict in recovery at the time? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. you have a brain that is addicted, like you can't solve a problem with the brain that created it, right? So the right. lack of objectivity that you have because right. what part of that brain is truly seeking, you know, life improving solutions right. and what part of that brain is the addict saying, "Oh, let's we can find an excuse to go on right. this exploration. Right. Yeah. Especially when like brilliant, famous people are saying, oh, it opened my mind. And I you realized- You can justify it. Yeah, yeah. I had a oneness when I really, and everything was so much better and it's medicine. So, you know, medicine, right. it's good. The I mean, plant this is, medicine. yeah, right, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if you call it medicine, <laughs> right? you know, that's what's crazy. And it, it really does like, it's weird. I mean, I had 
you know, I love Gabor Mate. He told me after we did a podcast that he would personally, you know, supervise me in an ayahuasca experience. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I've got another friend who is a hardcore, you know, 12 step guy, been sober a really long time, leads meetings, helps lots of guys, did a supervised psilocybin experience. I think he did it at Johns Hopkins and just said it was revelatory. And I said, well, how does that impact how you think about your sobriety? And he's like, I'm not sure right now. Oh, so it's it's confusing, it's destabilizing. Mm -hmm. You know, you hear one thing, you hear another thing. All I know is that I've stayed sober in a certain way for a long time and I'm very reluctant to screw with that, but I can't help thinking like, well, maybe I could have some kind of, you know, epiphany or psychological breakthrough that is unavailable to me that could be helpful. Is that a rationalization? Is that a justification? Or is there some truth to that? So here's the thing, you already had a spiritual awakening and you did it by hitting bottom and crawling your way back out again. That took time, it took an incredible amount of tolerating pain and it led to really good things. I do not believe that there is a pill that you can take or a substance that you can imbibe one time or two times or three times that can buy you that. It can maybe give you a shadow version of that, mm. but not in the deeply embedded neurological way that is necessary for sustained wellness and recovery. What people want is the spiritual awakening without doing the hard work to get there. You know, one of my patients once said to me, one of the things that I've learned about addiction and recovery is the hard way is usually the right way. And to me, these psychedelic interventions, they're like taking the gondola to the top of the mountain instead of walking up. Now you could argue that, okay, you know, both people got to the top of the mountain, but I contend that there's something more enduring and better about walking up to that top of the mountain than taking the gondola. Now, and, and again, I admit I'm probably biased from 20 plus years of, you know, treating people in recovery. And, and, you know, maybe there are aspects of my personality that I also bring to the table that will always kind of favor, um, let's say, an, a more ascetic approach to life. But I just, I find it hard to believe, you know, that there's not, a cost to pay on yeah. the other side. Yeah, I appreciate that. I mean, I don't know a lot of people who are who are walking the earth enlightened as a result <laughs> of this, if it was really delivering on the promise. And I think, you know, it, it's just interesting to see the kind of cultural embrace of this and the vernacular that goes into it, whether it's, you know, pot or ayahuasca, the plant medicine, or this is, you know, this is this is, you know, life enhancing as opposed to Detrimental, like particularly with pot, um, and as a, a parent of teenagers, you know the the way in which it's messaged. You would think that this is innocuous and that everybody's life would be better with a little bit of this. Right. But for every, you know, Seth Rogen, there's a lot of damage that I think, you know, is underappreciated and not talked enough about like i know plenty of people in recovery whose drug of choice is marijuana and it it's you know it's far from innocu innocuous yeah and again i think what what i what i try to communicate to people because i think it's underappreciated is you might be fine smoking pot every day for 10 years 20 years maybe even 30 years but eventually 
it will come and bite you in the butt. And then it's going to be really, really ugly. So why not stop now? Right. Why not? But that's stop tough. Now? My mind is like, well, I'll deal with that in thirty years. If I yeah. can do this for thirty years without yeah. a problem, like, sign me up for that. Really? Because <laughs> yeah. what, in thirty years, yeah. I mean, it's really, really bad. Do you know uh-huh. what? I mean? And also, I think it's even in those thirty years, it's it's deceptive because basically, you develop tolerance, your brain adapts, and then you're you're using to stave off withdrawal from the last dose. You're not really feeling better anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that, that's that, the deceptive right. piece. Right, you just need it to feel normal. Right, and that not, you're not really seeing the impact because you're in it. And I suspect that somebody who's been a chronic daily pot smoker for 30 years, when they do decide enough's enough and they try to stop, that period of acclimating your neurochemistry to some level of normal is gonna be brutal and very long. Brutal, long, and in some in some cases not possible, right? I, I especially have a cohort of older adults who've been smoking pot their whole lives, who actually they, they they've lost the brain plasticity to adapt to not using, and yet not only is the pot not working for them anymore, it's actually turned on them, gives them panic attacks, makes them paranoid. So here's this thing that they have to keep using every day in order to stave off withdrawal, but it makes Mm. them feel absolutely awful. So that's what I mean about the cost. Mm. What about vaping? Vaping nicotine, vaping cannabis. I guess you you can vape anything You can really vape anything, right? I mean, I know very little about this other than the fact that I'm a parent of teenagers and this is like a huge thing. Yes. The fact that not only are powerful substances more readily available, they've suddenly become essentially undetectable. Right, they're like, like there little are kids chargers that vape right? in the classroom. Yeah. They know how to do it while they're sitting in class yeah. and not be detected by the teacher. Right, it's it's odorless. Um, it does create a kind of a, a smoke, but you know it's not the kind of smoke that you would get with cigarettes. It looks like a little battery charger. You can just you know plug it into your computer, so it's essentially undetectable. And the scary thing, especially about the in the nicotine pods is that they deliver so much nicotine that kids are ending up with very high blood levels of nicotine, much higher than they would with, with normal cigarettes. So these kids aren't sleeping, you know, they're mm-hmm. jittery. Um, yeah, I mean, these are the technology has made these things so potent and so accessible that it's, it's really scary. Are you seeing uh, this show up in, in your patients in the clinic, in your clinic? We are seeing a lot of that. It's funny in the Bay Area, Parents and other advocacy groups mobilized very early to raise awareness about vape pens and, you know, nicotine levels. So we've done a lot of community um, education around this such that we're, we, we were initially seeing a ton of vaping and I feel like it's dropped off a little bit. What we really struggle with, um, frankly, most in young people is, is cannabis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I want to um, spend the last section of this talking about how to identify somebody who is potentially addicted or is moving in that direction. Like what are some of the warning signs, whether you're a parent or a friend or a brother or a colleague, given the ubiquitous nature with which we're all becoming addicted in, in this diversity of ways, like what, what are some of the warning signs? I think one of the most important warning signs um, is the double life, which is when we're behaving 
one way with the people in our lives and then have this separate life that they're not aware of and that we lie about. To me, that's a really important early sentinel signal um, that indicates a whole host of different types of compulsive overconsumption um, edging toward addiction. So believe it or not, I, I actually prescribe truth-telling to my patients no matter what stage of their addiction they're in, even people with little minor addictions, I say, try to go this whole month and don't lie about what what you're using, but also don't lie about anything at all, right. which turns out to be really, really hard for yeah, all of us. And terrifying. Yeah, and terrifying because we're all you know liars. Um, it's just sort of part of human nature. So I, I think that's a piece of it. You know, often you'll hear, you know, often you'll hear people who are in my field tell parents that um, you, know, you should look for changes in function. But unfortunately, there are a lot of kids who can be using a lot of drugs and get straight A's mm -hmm. and appear to function it just will, fine. It, it may improve their function. Right, in many exactly. cases it does. It, well, that's right, right? All it's, well. Yeah, it solves a problem, whether that's anxiety or social phobia, you know, wanting to be comfortable in groups or manage anger or existential, you know, uncomfortableness or whatever it is. So I don't really think that function per se um, is, is necessarily gonna allow us to detect that in our, in our loved ones. I really think that um, this, this kind of, um, you know, obfuscation, I can't even say the word. Obfuscation. Thank you, obfuscation, yeah. you know, this sort of smoke and mirrors. You know, even little things like saying, oh, you know, I was over there, but then well, you weren't there, you were somewhere else. You know, mm. that should be a worry. That should be a worry. Um, yeah, I guess that's, I mean, there, you know, I don't like to say like, oh, look for this because the truth is that people are really good at covering up addictive behaviors. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Like yeah. you can say, well, you know, look for the double life, but the addict is very yeah. diligent and crafty in yes. protecting that. Yeah second life to be undetectable. That's exactly so right. So when you when they come into your clinic and are at some level of being ready to be honest, that doesn't mean that they're gonna be ready to be honest outside of your office. That's for damn sure. Yeah. Boy, I just had a patient last week and I, we, we even role played about how she was gonna tell her girlfriend that she relapsed. And I said, okay, call me tonight and let me know how it went. No phone no call. No phone call. No phone call. <laughs> yeah, but you've been doing this long <laughs> enough to know that on some level, perhaps you weren't expecting a phone call. Oh, I always hope yeah. for it. I always mm. hope for it um, because sometimes, sometimes it, you know, it, it, it works and I get the phone call. Um, so, so I always expect it, hope for it, but and yet I'm not surprised when I don't get it. And I'll, I'll just have to reach out to her again and keep holding her in that space till she's she's ready. Keep encouraging her to make that mm. step. But yeah, I mean, it's it's hard, and I. You know, I really feel for parents because many times when serious addictions come to light, parents blame themselves and say, how could I not have seen that? How could I not have known? And I just feel like saying like easily, you could not have known very easily because, yeah. you know, people are really good at hiding these behaviors and come up with all sorts of really advanced strategies for doing it. So, you know, don't blame yourself. I mean, I, I don't know what my kids are doing online. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, now that they're older, I did when they were younger, now I have no idea. And I'm kind of neurotic about it too. But what I try to do is educate them about the pleasure pain balance and really demand honesty. I say, you know, I can't control what you do, but 
don't lie to me. It's a hard balance to strike as a parent. You don't wanna be the overly intrusive, overly helicoptering parent who's into their business too much, but you also can't be checked out either. And you know where that sweet spot is, is very difficult. You know, it's interesting data show that parents who are more involved in their kids' lives, know where their kids are, know their friends, um, check their backpacks, mm -hmm. go through their rooms, that those kids are actually at decreased risk of, of developing addiction. Yeah, it's not surprising. Now, I agree with you. There is a, a quality to that, that if it's intrusive and overly controlling can completely backfire. Yeah, that, that will create the, the, the opposite reaction right. once right. they get a little freedom. Yes, and Lord knows I've been guilty of that's, that in my, my own story. <laughs> is that yeah. your parenting story too? Well, it's no, it's oh, my it's, childhood oh, story. Oh, interesting, you know? okay, yeah. interesting. Yeah, okay, so how did that go? So I can not make that mistake. Well, I, I just, I grew up in a, I mean, you read my book. I grew up in a very achievement oriented household yeah. and, and there was a lot of attention on me and a lot of expectations. And I was very academically and athletically motivated, but I lived a very structured life. Like I never got into trouble. I never, you know, broke the rules or any of that kind of stuff. And when I moved 3000 miles, like no wonder I moved 3000 miles away to college. When I, when I was able to put that kind of distance between my upbringing and my current situation, I found myself, you know, spinning out of control or just, you know, sowing my wild oats in a way that was unhealthy because I think there wasn't enough freedom okay. that I had. And it was, you know, not to overly blame my parents, like a lot of it was self-imposed. Yeah, so I hear you on that, but I'm wondering what could your parents have done differently that might have protected you? Mm. That's a good question. Maybe nothing, or maybe just creating a little bit more leeway to kind of get in trouble a couple times, you know, because I was so afraid of getting in trouble. Yeah. Um, so that I could have gotten a little bit of that out of my system or just had that experience younger. Yeah. Well, I'm going to think about that. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I, you know, I am, so addiction runs in my family and, um, you know, I am worried about our kids, particularly our, our sons. And, um, you know, I've tried to be real thoughtful as a parent around, around this to try and give them the best chance, mm -hmm. you know, knowing that there are no guarantees. And I don't know that I've thread the needle. Um, I, I mean, I know, I know times when I've done it wrong um, and been sort of overly intrusive and that kind of letting go is something that I'm working hard on now. I try to give them knowledge of the science, knowledge of people's life experiences, and also some metacognitive strategies along the lines of tell the truth. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that shame can be both a, a force for good and a, and a force for evil. Think about quantity, frequency, potency. I mean, all the things I, I write about in my book, but still I think that what you're saying about your childhood is probably true for my kids, you know, in an achievement oriented uh, so achievement can be its own addiction. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the other thing, right? Yeah, certainly for yeah. me. Yeah, well, and I think for, for many of us. So, and so I, like, I wonder if our kids, 
you know, if they developed a problem, I hope that they would come to me and to us, but I do worry that they might not um, because the shame would be so great. So anyway. Right. And are, you being an expert in the field well, would, exactly. would, you know, multiply that right. possibly. Right. I think one of the things I've tried hard to do as a parent, and I, I'm curious about you, um, is that I've tried to be very open with my kids about my character defects and my mistakes so that they know that I'm not perfect. Of course, they don't think I'm perfect at all. In fact, there's almost nothing good about me these days. <laughs> yeah, um, but I know what that's like. Right, but, but what I'm trying to say is from very early on, I talked a lot about the, my mistakes and my regrets and my shame and the bad things that I've done and tried to own up even in our interpersonal relationships in the ways that I'm highly flawed and unbroken, I hope that will be helpful to my kids to give them room to feel like, you know, we all make mistakes. Mm. Yeah, I think that that's true. I think that's powerful. I mean, that's something that that we've definitely practiced as parents, you know, and I've taken my kids to AA meetings and they know my story and we're pretty transparent almost to a fault. Yeah, right. When it comes to that kind of thing, because that's how I, I'm, inculcated in that, yeah, like right. that's my nature. Like I don't carry shame around it anymore yeah. and I, I'm fine talking about yeah. it. But what's interesting, at least with respect to our younger kids, we have one who is very extroverted and honest to a fault. Like the great thing is, is like, she'll she'll just tell you everything. And right. sometimes it's shocking. Right, <laughs> like, but, and, and, if and when she does lie, like she's a terrible liar, yeah. but she really is honest and that's yeah. great. So there's an open channel there. Yeah, nice. um, the younger one is 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 very internalized. Yeah. And so it's harder to know what's going on. Yeah. And that's just their natural disposition. That's right. So it's also an individual thing right. with respect to what works for what kid. Yes, that's right. Which makes it harder, I guess. Yes, just when you think you've figured it out, right. you're, you get what a kid works who, for one doesn't, yeah, it doesn't work, work for, the for other. another one. That's I know, right. That's I know. Right. But it sounds like you've done everything that you can do. You're the psychiatrist, you're the expert. <sighs> I know, I know. You know? That's and a, that's all that's we can do. the scary and if, part, right? And if, that, and if something were to happen, you know, the, the job for you then, as you know, is like, it's not, your fault. Well, and I think this is yeah. something, you know, a lot of parents, like I know my parents, like when I ended up in treatment, like they blamed themselves, they were devastated. Yeah. And they kept running this, you know, narrative in their head, like, what did we do? And right. how did we cause this? And all of that. And a lot of my work with them has been trying to, you know, alleviate that right. in them. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think it's perfectly possible that I'm doing something terribly wrong right now in my parenting that I will not realize until 20 years right. from well, now. Well, I feel like it's rigged that way. Like yeah, no matter right. what you do, it's the, it, was, it turns out to be the wrong thing. Right, right. But I think what, I mean, one of the mantras that I've just sort of, I mean, I could almost get a tattoo for it is the AA mantra one day at a time, which I think is just such a healthy way to be a parent because all I can do is just try my best today mm -hmm. to be honest and thoughtful, to listen, to really listen, um, to try to be helpful, to be a guide, knowing I'm probably going to make a lot of mistakes, but I'm trying, you know, I, I haven't, I haven't given up. I'm, I'm in it. I'm trying. And I think, I think the kids can feel that, you know, that, that like, 
I want to be a good parent. I may not always be a good parent, but I'm trying to be mm-hmm. a good parent. And I think that might carry me over and, and like, you know, uh, help through some of the, the, the messed up stuff that I am sure that I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. But in the event that one of them develops some kind of addiction situation, you know, sort of having a healthy relationship with how you contributed or didn't contribute to that while maintaining an open channel of communication, right? Isn't that the key? Yes, I, I think that's right. You don't wanna take on too much responsibility. And this is where like the let it go, let it God is really useful. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, I, I've done what I can do and now these are your choices, right? And, and kind of just saying like this, this is your life. Like, yeah. I think that's, yeah. that's important. And the genetic piece is interesting. Like, is it true or not? Like there's this trope that it jumps generations. Like my parents weren't alcoholics. My grandparents weren't either, but so you have, it's in your family. It's not in your generation, but is there this thing where it jumps generations? Is that is that a truism or is that not backed up by science? I don't think there's data to support that. The data are, you know, looking at family studies and twin studies, um, you know, an identical twin with an alcohol use problem will, or an identical twin, if their twin has an alcohol problem, they're at higher risk. If you have a biological parent or grandparent, so it can skip the generations, but the biological parent, um, you know, is going to make a difference too. Um, that's what the the studies show. But, but I also just think, you know, again, addiction is endemic in the population. It's part of how we're wired. We are wired to seek out pleasure. We, we wouldn't be here mm-hmm. if that weren't true. And so, you know, it can pop up anywhere. Like you don't have to have it in your family for your kid to develop a serious addiction problem. And it doesn't mean that you did anything wrong or that there was trauma that needs to be uncovered, right? It's just, it's like wiring. Yeah. What about the epigenetic piece? This stuff is fascinating, right? The idea that your great, great grandparent suffered some trauma in childhood and the emotional experience of that trauma gets passed down genetically and can manifest in some kind of unhealthy addiction related behavior. Yeah, and I, I, I know there are animal studies showing that you know, these um, non-inherited base pairs that get modulated through mm-hmm. an experience, literally that DNA then gets passed to you know, the offspring and their offspring. Um, so, I, you know, so I guess all of that is, is plausible in humans as well. But, you know, I also wonder how much of it is just the culture. I mean, we we inherit and elaborate on our culture as much as we do on our DNA. So I think it's gonna be really hard scientifically to separate out what what is like protein expression mm-hmm. and what is like, what is, oh, this is how we do it in our family. Right. You know, we, we, do, we talk about X, but we don't talk about Y, or, you know, this is how you tolerate um, hard things that come along. Yeah. Yeah. How can you parse those two things? Really it's hard. almost impossible. I think almost right? impossible. Yeah. Well, finding ourselves mired in a, in a culture that is driving us all towards some addiction in one form or another, maybe a good way to end this is to share, you know, a little bit of wisdom or some thoughts for the person who's listening, who's, who's never thought of themselves in any kind of addictive context, but is like, yeah, maybe I uh, spend a little bit too much time shopping online or, you know, I am sitting on the toilet a little bit too long <laughs> scrolling through Instagram or like, why is TikTok like, why can't I stop scrolling up on these TikTok videos or whatever it is? 
You know, my first intervention with most of my patients in my clinic, whether they come in specifically for a problem related to addiction or whether they come in for something else like depression and anxiety, but are simultaneously consuming a lot of high dopamine um, substances or behaviors, is to recommend a dopamine fast. And that is a period of time abstaining from that drug or that behavior that is causing the problem or related to the problem. And over you know the last 20 years, I've essentially evolved an intervention, which is a month-long dopamine fast. The month is somewhat informed by the science. And there are some interesting studies that I talk about in my book, but essentially I tell people, you know, you're going to go into withdrawal in the first two weeks and by week four, you, you'll probably be feeling better as the gremlins hop off the pain side and homeostasis is restore, restored and you've generated more of your own dopamine. You're not as fixated on that drug and you're able to kind of get pleasure from more modest rewards. A lot of times patients will ask, well, why can't I just reduce the amount? And the reason I don't recommend that is because it just usually doesn't work. We really need to reset reward pathways. And then if we decide to go back to using our drug in moderation, put barriers in place mm -hmm. so that we can maintain moderation. And by the way, most of my patients who come in with even serious addictions, after a month of abstaining and feeling better, when I ask them, wow, things are so much better, do you want to do another month or do you want to go back to using your drug? In the vast majority of cases, they want to go back to using, mm -hmm. but they want to use less. So then we talk about barriers and you know, how they can engage in what I call self-binding strategies and other metacognitive strategies to moderate use. And then it really is an experiment. Some, some people are able to moderate their use and others are not. Um, and it's just like data gathering. Sometimes people can moderate their use and then decide it's just not worth it. Like it's so exhausting to moderate use that it's yeah. just easier to abstain. Yeah. For me, abstinence is easier than, than moderating yes, use. Yes, you know, exactly. Just remove it completely yes. and eventually you acclimate. But yes. moderating use ends up occupying a lot of emotional angst yes. and mental energy. Yes, that's But right. that's me, right? Yeah. So that that idea of, of abstinence followed by an experiment of what re reframing your use looks like will be information that will tell you how big of a problem this really is for you. That's exactly right. It, it, it's informative in many different ways. And it, because it resets dopamine, it's also restorative because people tend to feel better after a month of that. Um, and, and it gives you some guidance for you know what the next step might be, whether it's moderation or abstinence. I think talking about moderation, which has kind of been taboo in addiction medicine for many years, um, is, is also really important, not only because for some people, moderation is actually the right choice, but because now there are so many drugs that like we can't eliminate entirely, like like our smartphones. I mean, mm -hmm. people, you, you basically can't function without or a smartphone food. or food, right? So then people have to figure out ways to moderate consumption of those substances mm -hmm. or those goods. So it's, a, it's an important discussion that we have to have. And my main message about self-binding strategies is that you have to think of them and put them in place before you're exposed to the substance. If you wait until you're offered you know, a use, you're, yeah. it's not gonna work. Forget you have it. To, yeah, forget it. You have to anticipate it, have that barrier in place, have a plan. 
And, you know, um, as I talk about again in the book, there are pharmacologic strategies now that can create barriers for people, which are very interesting. Things like naltrexone um, that blocks and binds, binds, binds and blocks the opioid receptor. That for some people is really a miracle drug when it comes to things like alcohol and moderating alcohol use. So there's an interesting, um, you know, science that's opening yeah. up there around ways to do that. Yeah, the self-binding thing is interesting. I mean, basically it's, it's about prophylaxis, like, creating space like temporal, you know, geographic space, like all these different ways of, you know, putting distance between you and whatever the trigger is. But in the in the kind of vernacular of recovery, the idea being like if you haven't done that when you're met with that triggering substance, you're you're going to it's going to be impossible That's to right. refuse it because the train pulled out of the station a long time ago. Right. Like that relapse was a long time in the making right. and all it needed was an opportunity to express itself. And I think that that's underappreciated in in thinking about recovery. Like yeah. they always say, you know, in the rooms, like the you know every decision, or, you know, everything that you do is either moving you, you know, towards the drug or away from the drug. And and you know, relapse often requires a very long runway. Yes. You know, and so being aware of that, like it's you know what I'm doing now today to take care of my sobriety has an impact on you know some situation that I'll find myself in a month ago. Right, a month later. Right, I mean. right. Yeah. Yes, I mean, in the in the throes of desire, there's there's no choosing. And the other important part of, of of what you just said is that you know, wellness is usually not one sledgehammer that's going to fix everything. It's the slow accumulation of a lot of small behaviors over many days, and that's something that I have to remind patients of, you know, again and again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, in the book, you you lay it out with this dopamine acronym, where every letter yeah. in the word dopamine, you know, is kind of you know one step along this yep. pathway yeah. of of you know thinking more intelligently about how all this operates. Yes. Yeah. Cool. Well, it was awesome talking to you. Really awesome to talk to you. Thank you so much. How do much. you feel? Did we do it? You know what. I'm Is there like, anything we didn't talk about? I am about? not worthy <laughs> no. because I'll, no, I'm 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 not blowing sunshine away. I'm telling you the truth. Like you read my book, you thought about it, you had you got it, you asked great questions. Like this has been the most satisfying um, interaction I've had around the book since I wrote it. And as an author, you know, like the the the, the primary desire is to be understood. Like we want to be understood. And I'm so grateful because you get it. You totally get it. You got it. You get it. And um, it's been really rewarding talking to you um, because of that. Well, I appreciate that. I want to come and have a therapeutic session in your office <laughs> next time I'm in the Bay Area. Anytime, free of yeah, charge. And I'd love to have you back on. Like this is obviously, as I said at the outset, this subject is is near and dear to me. And I think, you know, we can't do it justice in a couple hours. So I'd love to oh, continue well, the conversation. You. Yeah, no, I'd love point. to. And, you know, especially like one of, it's so funny that you mentioned like Johan Hari and Gabor Mate, you know, two wonderful people, they've written wonderful books, but you, you drill down to something. One of the reasons that I wanted to write this book was exactly that. It's like, yes, trauma is important. Yes, social connection is important, but like, even without those problems, like addiction is, you know, mm -hmm. happens, yeah, you know, it's still, there. it's still there and it can happen to any of us. And, and this problem of, you know, 
be living in an addictogenic universe is really core now. Like we have to realize that because otherwise we keep looking for the trauma, you know, or, yeah. or keep trying to like, well, maybe or I'm if not we just, connected If we just enough. understand that trauma, then. Right, if we just understand trauma, yeah. or if I just had a more intimate relationship with my spouse and I, it's like, no. No, mm-hmm. you, you could have the it's best like relationship on the planet. Yeah, that's an emotional geographic. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, yeah. that's good. Yeah. I've not heard that before. That's a good one. All right. Well, to be continued yes. in the meantime, everybody pick up Dopamine Nation. I love this book. I think it's going to help a lot of people. So thank you thank for the you. work that you do. Yeah, thank you. And I'm at your service. Peace. And plants. Bye. Sobriety. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. For links and resources related to everything discussed today, visit the show notes on the episode page at richroll.com. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, and on YouTube. Sharing the show or your favorite episode with friends or on social media is of course always appreciated. And finally, for podcast updates, special offers on books, the meal planner, and other subjects, Subscribe to our newsletter, which you can find on the footer of any page on richroll.com. Today's show was produced and engineered by Jason Camiolo. The video edition of the podcast was created by Blake Curtis. Portraits by Allie Rogers and Davey Greenberg. Graphic elements courtesy of Jessica Miranda. Copywriting by Georgia Whaley. And our theme music was created by Tyler Pyatt, Trapper Pyatt, and Harry Mathis. You can find me at richroll.com or on Instagram and Twitter at richroll. I appreciate the love. I love the support. I don't take your attention for granted. Thank you for listening. See you back here soon. Peace. Plants. Namaste.